want to go to there. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes for the hearts, give <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Televerse Sound Insights TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, happy to your anniversary. What? Oh my God. This is like my longest relationship ever. <laughs> not, not, that's sadly not even true. Uh, yeah. Woo, two years. Oh my goodness. Oh well, my goodness. listeners may have noticed a slight change at the beginning of the podcast every two years, whether we need it or not. I will ask you to do a new intro because I am not gifted in the mixing of things and composition of et cetera. Uh, so would you like to tell our, our gentle listeners about the new intro? Sure. Uh, I spent way too much time on it uh, before it got compressed down to 64 kilobytes per second or whatever you're hearing now. So I have no idea what garbage it came out like. But uh, basically I took a sand because we, we always say, you know, intro and outro music by the bicycle. So uh, we're only going to do this once so that, you know, uh, the track is built around a sample from an old Richard Harris tune called Hymns from the Grand Terrace, which is like a medley. This is from the middle part. It's not played by Richard Harris. As far as I can tell, the, the, that acoustic guitar lick is played by a fellow named Fred Tackett. Everything else I built around the track, uh, so that's what that is. So you could say it's composed by me, which would only be half true, so... Well, I guess we'll just say it's by me later to make it easier. Anyway, and then you actually chose the clips and sent them to me, so you did uh, probably about a tenth of the work. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> I I put together a smattering and and yeah. sent you them for your your selection. Now the clips for the intro, and I may have missed one or two because they are over overlaid quite wonderfully by yourself. I believe there are sixteen clips in there, quotes, or uh, various uh, sound bites from television that hopefully are memorable. So uh, I, I'm going to challenge the listeners to see if they can name them. Uh, you know, if you're if you're up for the task, let me know if you can place all the different yeah. clips. There's a pretty obvious one in the middle that I think everyone will get. There, there's a couple of pretty straightforward ones there. But uh, but yeah, I, I look forward to, to hearing from you guys what you think of our awesome new intro. And speaking of hearing from you guys, we did hear from a bunch of you this week. We heard from Ken, who's decided that we have perfect spy names. So Kate Kulzik, bold Midwest American spy. Oh, these are 60s spy names, by the way. Simon okay. Howell, seen it all British Canadian spy. And Ricky de Casasau, exotic, debonair, Spanish-Italian spy, because Portuguese is way too specific for the 60s. So I thought that was pretty entertaining. Um, apparently, you're the no-nonsense one or the world-weary one. Uh, I don't know what that makes, uh, what 60s Midwest American means, but I I'm, I'm going to go for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the 60s, so whatever you're, you're getting to do is going to be pretty thankless, I'm afraid. Probably, probably. I'll probably like, save the day with some mascara or something, but but look fabulous while doing so. So I'll 
I'll hold on to that at least. Um, Carl is checking out Rubicon, thanks to our, our recommendation or our DVD shelf that we did with Les, so glad to hear it. And he suggests Scrubs for finales. Now, I'm assuming when you say Scrubs finales, you mean the, not the series finale, but the pretty much series finale that happened the year before the actual series finale. Randy and I are looking at doing an article about series finales that were supposed to be series finales and then ended up being season finales when the shows got picked up again. And Scrubs is definitely in contention for that. Uh, so that that's a fun list as well. He also recommends The Osbournes Reloaded. Have you seen any of The Osbournes? Uh, are you asking me that question? No. Yeah. No, I have not seen any of the Osbournes. Neither, neither have I. So apparently Carl says we're missing out. Swedge wants to know if we're going to do any separate Breaking Bad podcast. As much as I uh, you know, get my recaps up as soon as I can, and I just kind of hang out in the comment section there, waiting and hoping people will comment so I can talk about the show in a spoiler-safe zone, you know, without being a dick to people on Twitter. We will not be putting out any separate Breaking Bad podcast. The The practical reason being that you work Sunday nights, but also because this is enough work as it is. Uh, so we basically just yep. have a built-in extra Breaking Bad podcast every week. And then, let's see, Keith is looking forward to hearing us talk about Breaking Bad and does hoping for Spotlight were his hopes in vain, sir. Uh, no, Breaking Bad is in the spotlight this week. Plenty of Breaking Bad talk later on in the show. We were talking a little happy TV, and and Randy is firmly of the belief that Ben and Kate trumps Mindy Project. I, As I understand, you strongly agree with that. We're getting He's getting the Roman salute there for, for Ben and Kate. And Kyle recommends the six feet under finale and he still hasn't finished the shield either though he he has the dvds so kyle i mean come on but i can't really talk as we discussed last week um but somehow he's remained unspoiled which i have not so uh kudos to you kyle and uh, you haven't been you haven't been completely spoiled though there's there's still some more stuff in there okay i hope i absolutely hope that is true from what i understand you know what happens to vic yes i do and i know and... what happens to shane Okay. And I know what happens to Claudette. Well, then, never mind. <laughs> but I don't know what happens to all the other people. So, like, Danny, don't know. No clue. So there oh, you go. You'll, you'll There's see. a few of them. Let's see. We did not get any new iTunes ratings or reviews this week, but we do appreciate those. So if you are listening to the podcast and enjoy what you hear, or even if you don't, we enjoy negative reviews, too. They're usually pretty entertaining. They are. Head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review there. We have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. Also, at Sound On Site, we have plenty of fun stuff going up. TIFF is uh, starting off, right? Or Telluride is going right now. What's uh, What's the fest situation? Uh, I don't know if we're going to have Telluride coverage this year, but yeah, TIFF starts on the 5th of September, uh, and it's, I mean, it's not as crazy a lineup, in my opinion, as it was last year. There's not as much that personally I need to see. I think I've, I'm lined up to see 11 films in, <laughs> uh, in 10 days, which is a lot, but it's not a crazy amount. Um, so, uh, we'll see. It may end up being more than that, depending on how certain things shake out, but yeah, there's some stuff I'm excited for. I... Decided I'm not going to see Gravity. Uh, what? Because uh, it's a general release. It'll come out a few weeks later. I can see it with everyone else. I, I don't need to rush to see it. Uh, I'm, I'm more focused on the stuff that I don't think is going to get a release of any kind uh, or that or that may take until next April to get a release. So I'm not going to I'm going to generally steer away from the big Hollywood stuff. Interesting. You're you are a uh, more thoughtful man than I, because I would have like been running to Gravity 
and probably getting terrified. Anyways, let's let's get on with our anniversary show. There's plenty to talk about. Not a lot of TV to talk about, but lots of special segments with our spotlight on Breaking Bad. And then, our, of course, our second annual Make You Watch-a-thon. I made you watch... Uh, number one ladies detective agency. And uh, I made you watch... On Death Row and First Person. Right. Those are from Werner Herzog and Errol Morris, respectively, because I've, I've got to show off my film nerd cred. <laughs> and Anthony Minghella and Richard Curtis. And, of course, the the books by Andrew McCall Smith um, for, for Number One Ladies Detective Agency. So lots of uh, shows that you probably haven't seen by people you've heard of. So yes, take a listen. That'll be at the very end of the show. But first, our week in comedy and reality. Help me out here. You seem like you got your head on straight. He doesn't believe us. I can believe your friend may have been eaten by a shark. It's the description of that shark that I am having a hard time with. I told you it was translucent. Translucent. The word of the day. When you say translucent, you mean like a jellyfish? Meaning we could see right through it. I know what the damn word means. It was like something I've never seen before. I got a missing teenage girl, presumed dead, and a boat. No occupants. I was really hoping you could help me out here. You think ghosts are logical, Sheriff? Who said anything about ghosts, Finch? I did. You know, that's the trouble with people like you, Sheriff. Never want to deal with the truth till it's too late. Ghosts are real. As real as the lies this town was built on. As real as the price we're going to pay for those sins. You mark my words. You mark my words. This week in comedy, we have Wilfred, Stagnation, Children's Hospital, Imaginary Friends, NTSF, SDSUV, TGI Murder, and Make Kate Watch Ghost Shark. So let's start out with Wilfred. Sweet Lord. Uh, yeah, I, let's keep this really, really brief. The episode's called Stagnation. There's a reason I think they know they're in a rut because they acknowledged it in this episode. It couldn't have just been accidental meta commentary. A couple of very dirty laughs here and there. Uh, but mostly really cheap sex jokes and not a lot of actually no plot movement whatsoever. So yeah, kind of a kind of a miss. Oh, we had plot movement. It was at the very end. It was plot backpedal. I don't even remember. Oh yeah, see, because now Ryan is suspecting that Drew cheated on Jenna, so now we're gonna get more of that old chestnut <sighs> of a shipping. I didn't situation. even I didn't even register that. I was so bored with the episode. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Children's Hospital and NTSF SUV were uh, a little on the weaker side. I would say it's the weakest installment of each of them this season. I still laughed. I still had fun. And NTSF featured Lance Reddick, who is just, every time he shows up on comedies, I always enjoy him. He was he was a lot of fun on uh, Always Sunny last year. And I think he's just hilarious with the crazy eyes on NTSF this week. But that being said, it was a bit of a mess for both for both episodes. I think I like Children's a little better, if only because Horse Aids was funny and then not funny and then back to funny again mm -hmm. for me. One of those things that rep just the right amount of repetition. And uh, also, as, as disarmingly strange as the imaginary friend wing was, I did laugh a lot at Drunk Daddy. <laughs> uh, that was that was a nice touch. And uh, as far as the DSF goes, Lance Reddick was amazing and horrifying. Uh, the rest of the, and also I really liked, I don't know if you caught it, but uh, Karen Gillan's hysterical chanting of head pop, head pop at the end <laughs> was also quite funny. Rest of the episode, not so great. Yeah, well, hopefully they'll be back on, on forum next week. And then the final comedy to mention, I was like, where do I put this? 
I, I guess comedy. Make Kate watch Ghost Shark. Thank you, gentle listeners. I threw it out there just sort of on a whim. And I believe, like, there was maybe one vote for one of the other shows. It was pretty much a landslide. And Ghost Shark was appropriately ridiculous, as I'm assuming everyone heard from the clip at the beginning of the segment. And in some parts of it, I could absolutely see how much fun this would be uh, to to group watch, and which is why I think Sharknado exploded on Twitter, because just watching it by yourself is way less entertaining if you don't have anyone to talk to about it. But uh, yeah, I get I get it, you know. Apparently Sharknado was more fun. Parts of it actually worked and were, were pretty great. Parts of it just kind of went on a bit too long. So I, even at, I think it was like 80 minutes or something, it was still a little on the extra long side. But but I did. Right. I ended up enjoying myself and uh, it was appropriately ridiculous. By the time the person has the ghost shark come out of, because of course, do you know the premise? Uh, I think I can guess. Yeah, there's a ghost shark that can go into any, appear in any water. So first in the ocean, and then in a pool, and then at a car wash, in the mist of from the sprinklers, and in a bucket. Uh, a person gets pulled through <laughs> a toilet seat by the ghost shark, and by the end, somebody has drunk a cup of water. And of course, then it starts raining, too, so then... And, but a person a drinks a cup of water, and the shark splits the person in half coming out of their stomach science yes very much so <laughs> wow and, sorry to be clear you watch this by yourself sober yes i did i did indeed <sighs> you're yeah. doing this wrong kate <laughs> probably but uh well i'll put some new picks up it's gonna be a while i think before i put a, another sci-fi original film up there as an option apparently those are very popular or at least with our listeners they are especially inflicting them upon others but uh but i did end up enjoying myself so thank you guys for that that wraps up the comedies and we're just gonna go straight on into reality this week because there's so there's so few of each first we have top chef masters and i i imagine you didn't catch up with that as you are now to some extent living top chef masters more or less, yes. My main takeaway is that it's nice to see Voltaggio being a badass and being so um, clearly among equals on Masters. So I was a little worried that it was you know, odd they were taking somebody from original Top Chef and putting them on Masters, but he's clearly earned his place. Uh, we have Hollywood Game Night, The Office Party, a lot of fun again. And I just mentioning this because Hollywood Game Night got picked up for season two. So it'll be back next summer. I think it's 10 episodes. And there's only one left this season, next this coming week. So I'm looking forward to that next year. And then we also had the Writer's Room Game of Thrones, which had a advanced D&D shout out, which for those of you who don't know, that is AD, that's D&D 2 from back in the day, which is the one that I grew up on when I was like five. Uh, so th- I, I really enjoyed the little game mastering, dungeon mastering discussion there. But this was one of the, I think probably the most interesting episode they've done of the Writer's Room because the Writer's Room is... David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, uh, they they could just, it's just the three of them. So it was Jim Rash with the, the two creators, showrunners, and also they write almost all of the episodes. And, and so that kept it much more intimate, allowed them to get much more in depth. And because they're also the showrunners, they, while also being the most of the writing staff, it let them get into some details that these other ones have not really gotten into because they've stayed focused purely on the writing and less with the production. So 
definitely, I would say, check it out when you have some free time, Simon, because it was actually surprisingly fun. Cool. And, and the only way they're ever going to top that is if they do a Louis writer's room with <laughs> Louis C.K. With Louis. That, hey, I, I would love to watch that. But let's talk about the, the main reality show this week, which is So You Think You Can Dance, which featured the top eight dancing, and we got two eliminated. Jenna Elfman apparently has some serious dance chops and, and cred, and I'm glad they established that at the beginning. But she was completely useless as a judge. Yeah, it's it was weird how they went out of their way to yeah, I had no idea about her dance credentials. I spend roughly zero point many zeros point zero uh, of my life uh thinking about Jenna Elfman, but yeah, she was like Jepson level useless almost. Um I mean it was she was enthusiastic, which is something, but and it's funny cuz for a second I I saw her on the panel, I thought, "Ooh, they brought Applegate back again." And I was like, "Wait a second. <laughs> Uh, that's not her. Yeah, I'm really hoping we're going to get Applegate this week. Fingers crossed. I didn't think there were as many standout routines this week, and sadly, uh, the Jenner routine was completely amazing, and then yeah. she got booted. Yeah. Uh, like, easily the most instantly memorable of the night, I thought. Um, although I also really liked Amy's routine, and I feel like I really like Fiction's as well, although it's already fading from my mind. Other than that... <laughs> kind of hit and miss yeah the the structure of having the all-stars choreograph really worked for some people and didn't for others for example aaron did the jive and i thought he actually the opening chunk of it did really well when he does that leap and gets his legs past 180 over her. Yeah, yeah, yeah and she's not that short uh that was it was great and there was a huge you know woo from the audience because it was very impressive but after that she didn't give him anything to do. And so he's just kind of like standing there and maybe spinning sometimes. And and I felt like the choreography really let him down. He had a little awkwardness with one or two of the things, but I felt like that was much more on the choreographer than Aaron. Yeah. Uh, and like, like you said, when he does that leap, that was one of those many say that you can dance moments of someone could have just died. <laughs> um, it's pro- possibly the most physically dangerous show on television. But yeah, it was definitely one of his weakest routines ever, which is really too bad. Uh, I also wasn't that crazy about Jasmine's routine. With Twitch. Didn't really work for me. The, the, the whole concept was just a little bit too much. I thought it was a little overbearing, and I don't didn't really feel like it played to her strengths. Well, I thought the routine, the idea was fun, but I didn't feel like it followed through you know like i thought the concept was good but i wasn't necessarily after the first moments i wasn't really picking up on it in in the dance i will say this for jasmine i was watching her when she was dancing next to twitch and then that's some of that's probably the choreography he wasn't giving himself a lot of flashy stuff to do either to keep the focus on her which is very generous as a choreographer and a dancer but yeah that's one where i want to see the two of them do a christopher scott choreographed hip-hop number instead and uh, yeah. they're, the ones, like, as soon as they paired Amy with Travis, it was like, okay, yeah, well, they clearly they want Amy in the finale because they're giving her the only uh, main choreographer from their, you know, their team of choreographers they always go to who was a dancer on this show. So they, they're already giving her somebody they know can choreograph really well to dance with. And that wasn't necessarily the case with everyone else. I thought the, the, the Roomba with Haley, that was hot. Well done, Haley. I wasn't really remembering it. I had to like look up and see what did Haley do again. Oh yeah, she did that Roomba, and it was amazing. So it wasn't maybe the flashiest, but when you're watching it, I thought it was very well executed. Um, let's see what else do we have. Uh, Comfort was fun with Paul. He he did okay, but not great. I thought. 
Um, the fiction Allison thing would have been way more interesting if instead of an interracial couple, it was a same gender couple. And they're talking about like prejudice and everything. Yes, there is still prejudice for interracial couples. Allison is engaged to Twitch, so obviously she has some experience with that. But it was a weird routine because they kept talking about how you, we've made progress, etc. But they never actually used the word interracial. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it wasn't clear to me whether that's what they were going for just based on their races or if they were trying to be emblematic of just anyone who's having a hard time. Uh, it did feel kind of like unspecific and which, which you know, a, a lot of these routines did suffer from a lack of specificity because we weren't necessarily having uh, the, the usual ambitious choreographers uh, doing their thing. Well, and, and, and Fiction's been dancing with Amy all season, so it's not weird watching him dance with the, oh, it's scandalous, he's dancing with the white girl. Right, yeah, and it's not 1950. Yeah. But, um, the, but I did like the routine, even if it, it, even if it was the umpteenth version of Skinny Love, and I never need to hear that song ever again. <laughs> um, the, the actual lantern bit I thought was sort of awkward. Yeah. Um, Tucker had his Romeo and Juliet jazz thing. I thought that was actually really well executed when they started paralleling each other. That was, that looked pretty great, but the rest of the choreography, I wasn't really remembering. Now, based on these dances, who would you, who do you think is going to make the audience only, uh, cut to, to the final four? Who do you think is going to stick around and who's going to go? By the way, I was so, I was, I know there were other reasons, but I was right about Jasmine. She was not in the bottom, in the bottom half tonight so yes yes you uh, are. i would say uh how many people are they sending home to one of each one of each maybe Haley and uh i don't even know out of the guys maybe paul i feel like it's going to be Haley and fiction because those are the two that have been in the bottom before and uh, jasmine's been in the bottom before but she's got the twitch bump so i feel yeah. like she's she'll be fine so you know amy's definitely in um, I, and with the guys, I think nobody is definitely safe. Paul has the woo girls going for him. So he does. that, that will certainly help him. And, uh, fiction's been in the bottom before, so maybe he'll, you know, get dropped down again, but I don't really know. I'm looking forward to the dances. And like I said I, earlier, we got to get Christina Applegate back one more time before the show goes off the air. And it could be Aaron in the bottom also since it wasn't necessarily his week. His best. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, I, although I think that would be... They, they really strongly emphasized people remember all that other stuff he did. <laughs> Maybe yeah. think about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I thought, so yeah, pretty good episode. Not the best, but uh, no outright, uh, I think, just... Full, at, at this point, I don't think we're going to see any more just utter failures. Yeah, Definitely. That wraps up our week in comedy and our week in reality. And so we'll take a break and come back with our week in drama. You will resign when I fire you out of petty malice and not before. Our trust numbers. Yeah, they're bad. They're fatal. Firing Jerry was obviously the right thing to do, but it wasn't enough. And we've known that for two months. Charlie and I have to go. Your head's up your ass. Mrs. Lansing. Guy comes in here into my hizzy. Guy comes in here, cooks an interview, no remorse. 30 lawyers that the story goes on air. You, I don't know what you do to Sherlock Holmes' this thing. I wouldn't be able to figure it out, and I'm the smartest person in the room. Well, I wouldn't go that Oh, shut the fuck up, you Daniel Craig wannabe. I don't want to be Daniel Craig. Well, you should want to be Daniel Craig. Everybody should. This week in drama, we have 9 for 9, the 99ers, <laughs> Strike Back, Shadow Warfare, Broadchurch, The Bridge, Destino, and The Newsroom, Red Team 3. Now, first, 9 for 9, the 99ers, 
This interviewed the Women's World Cup champions, the U.S. Women's World Cup champions um, from 99, the team. It was actually really well put together in that it was sort of looking at, you know, women's soccer in the United States or football if you're anywhere else in the world and and the their sort of rise to fame and appreciation. And until I think it was 2011 or maybe 2009, I don't have it in front of me, a U.S. team did not win the World Cup or win even gold, go get a gold at the Olympics um, for that whole time. So it really was sort of a special moment for women's U.S. soccer, at least on, on the international stage. And so they what they did was they interviewed the team, but they put them all together on the, on the soccer field and they kind of sat around and just sort of talked about their experience. And because these women are clearly still very... Um, very close and very had very strong bonds and lots of happy memories about the time. It was very it put you in the, in the conversation with them in a way that worked very well and was far more engaging than just talking heads. There was some interspersed home video footage and clips from the time, uh, from news the news and other things like that. But just listening to these women talk about their experiences and their perspectives and everything, because there was for the most part not a lot of drama. They were able to do it and it felt very truthful and it just, it worked really well for what this story needed. So I would say this is one of the best nine for nines. Um, and uh, it's still the diving uh, no limits episode. And then I would say Pat summits episode. And then I would say the 99ers. So uh, it's one of the better ones of, of the, of the group. And I, I, I was glad I spent my time with it. Strike back shadow warfare, more of the same they introduced Duker Scott's character. He's going to be a recurring um, antagonist this season and should be a lot of fun. He looks like he's just, you know, chewing the scenery in a very appropriate kind of way. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on his performance once you get a chance to catch up, but let's move on to broad church and the <laughs> delightfully inappropriate police escort guy. who seems he was very happy about all this free food he's getting because this <laughs> the family's kid died. Man, that the show is so badly in need of comic relief that I, enjoyed those i don't know 25 seconds or so that we got of it this week yeah poor jody whittaker man yeah it's it's almost hard to watch uh you know I, i've seen her in attack the block and i'm sure a couple other things like i she's clearly a very versatile actress but she is just getting punished every single week and it's sort of hard to watch in an uncomfortable way <laughs> for me because like especially near the end when she sees what mark's up to it was just, uh, they're piling it on a little thick, and I guess it makes sense, but it's also, it's not pleasant television. Which is, yeah, it's not not necessarily a criticism, but just felt like it was worth noting. I'm not sure, I mean, you've seen the whole season, so maybe it'll make more sense later, but I'm not convinced by the guy playing Mark, uh, unless there's supposed to be a whole other layer of deep, dark secret that explains just his general lack of conv Okay, you're shaking your head at me. Anyway, uh... It just when he's when he breaks down after they find out about the affair and and it just doesn't register as real to me. It still seems like either he's not a very good actor or I'm not supposed to believe him. And it seems like I am. So that whole performance is very confusing to me. I look forward to your thoughts at the end of the season. And and that's what I'll, that's what I'll say there. I, I thought it was a satisfying resolution to the father being a suspect 
thought that you know came together pretty well and uh i also like you said last week i especially at this point in watching him i was not big on the psychic either not really enjoying uh his presence on the show but i did enjoy tenet more in this episode and i, I the the persistent stubble is still a little annoying but uh i'm enjoying his performance more how are the the leads coleman and tenet working for you at this point i mean they're both great uh it's uh, i'm surprised that we're three episodes in and they're still not getting along at all mm-hmm. i was figuring we'd start to have a, a t- they've got to start working together at some point i assume over the course of the season maybe i'm wrong but um I don't know. I, I'm a little bit disappointed with, with the characterization of Tenet's character in that it's just, I've seen this guy before mm-hmm. in another dozen series, and as good as Tenet is, despite his annoying scruff, uh, which actually did inspire me to shave this morning, <laughs> um, it's just, you know, the guy tortured by his past who needs to do better at his job because he screwed up before. And again, maybe there'll be more nuance to this later, but it's just uh, like, okay, I get it. I kind of feel the same way about the Jodie Whittaker character. Like, yes, I understand the grief that she's going through and how things are hard, but I've also seen this before. And as well as she's acting it, it's all very familiar. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree. Which is kind of, you know, broad church in general, like a cobbling of a lot of things I've mostly seen before, uh, done very well, but still can't escape that familiarity. Also, if I had to pin it on anyone right now, it'd be the pastor. Cause if Mario Baba taught me anything, it's don't trust pastors. Rory. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the bridge and Destino. We had a lot of forward motion this week on the case. Apparently, the serial killer Im- impetus for the start of the season will not be continuing throughout the entire series season and certainly not the entire series, which is something we found out. I guess that would count as a spoiler. I don't know if it's an official statement from the producers. I don't know at what level that counts for a spoiler. I feel like it's more they're managing viewers expectations. Um, they don't want they don't want a killing 2.0 where the viewers are expecting very different things and the producers are trying to give them. Have they said something this week and I missed it? Yeah, well, it was at some point in the last two weeks. Okay, well, I mean, oh God, a lot happened this week. Uh, mm. First of all, it was a total mess of an episode, but I thought it was I thought that was more good than bad. It was a uh, hot the... mess of an episode. Hot mess, hot mess. Yes, um, I love that term. <laughs> the let's start with the good. I think that the whole setup with uh, meeting the uh, local lawman in in the dentist's office and him having that moment of realization and following him around for a bit and then him getting his face blown off uh, (laughs) was all really effective. It was a little cute when you thought back on it, but I thought it was really effectively staged. I didn't see it coming at all, Mm -hmm. and which is how these things should work. And I thought the whole way that was edited with his face blown and then we see Childress for the first time with a sniper rifle. Uh, very striking actor, by the way, who I don't remember seeing before. Uh, everything about that sequence I thought was great. It was very tense. Uh, just the image of Ruiz just covered in some other guy's blood all of a sudden was very disconcerting. And for the rest of most, the rest of the episode, too. Yeah. And uh, and also the standoff with, um, with, uh, with Sonia, I thought, was quite well staged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought all the action beats were actually unusually good this week. Yeah, it was effective. The The pacing was odd to me. The uh, I guess maybe because I was approaching this episode as in, as oh, well, this can't possibly be the guy because it's only episode fill in the blank. And uh, maybe 
I, I still think it's more complicated. I don't trust this that this guy was the one synchronizing lights and he doesn't seem like the sharpest tool in his creepy shed full of guns. So uh, I would imagine there's something else going on that will at least take us for a few more episodes while they're trying to find the guy. But I would absolutely agree the standoff worked well. The the situation with that that back and forth with Sonia and then the reveal of the tape was effective and made sense. So while there were problems this week and I don't care about <laughs> I don't care about Marco's wife at all. And I don't care about Bobby Cobb, and I really don't care. Aww, I mean, I, I kind of care about Bobby Cobb. I like Bobby Cobb, but I don't really like Ray. And so, despite my enjoyment of Brian Van Holt, Brian Van Holt, I don't. You know, I'm, I'm losing interest in 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 Ray. I should say. As soon oh, as I, I start I... calling him Ray instead of Bobby Cobb, you know, I care less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I actually loved the cold open this week, which was just maybe. I think actually it was the most jaw-dropping moment of anything on TV this week, including Breaking Bad. Yeah. It was just what is uh, totally unexpected. And Van Holt did uh, play it perfectly. Is this like Van Holt was so good in that scene? Yeah. Thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I don't I you don't even want to get into the details for anyone who hasn't watched it yet. But it didn't really have anything to do with the rest of the episode. Mm-hmm. But I like that they still find time for these moments of color and character in the midst of all this plot mechanism. So that's actually the best sign going forward i mean there are how many episodes left in the season like still like five yeah i think we're i think we're on episode seven this week so yeah, yeah so there's still six, six actually yeah eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen uh i had to count because i'm dumb uh the so there's still a lot of plot to go uh hopefully like you said they're planning on wrapping up the mystery soonish i don't think i, I don't think it's going to be totally done honestly till the end of the season mm-hmm. uh but uh, I like that they're making headway. That if they now, if they have Childress not be affiliated with the case at all, I'll be really annoyed. It, yeah. I don't see any way possible they're going that way with it because there's just too much. Uh, I think he's more likely kind of just a, not a patsy, but a, sort of a dumb, a tool. blunt instrument, yeah. blunt instrument partner. Uh, so I don't expect Childress to live past next week. <laughs> But uh, but we'll see. And uh, I'm actually I'm sort of already looking forward to the bridge of season two, which I expect to happen uh, where this case is over and they either move on to a different format or get a case that feels less familiar or less sort of ostentatious. How much do you care about a plausible or even somewhat believable reason for Marco being in that office? Because as soon as this case wraps up, there isn't one. Does that matter to you? I think they're going to manufacture one. I think he's going to have to get away from the cartel and maybe uh, emigrate. Yeah, but the then States. he can't go back. So then you lose both sides. Uh, they can they can keep following the cartel stuff without Marco there, though. I suppose if he and so fish out of you know like him having to not being able to go home and home being so close could be a very interesting. Plus, we haven't ruled out his wife and family and their horrible grisly murders. So yeah, that's true. That's very true. Uh, you know. <laughs> which I still think is going to happen. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities. I have enough. I don't know how much I trust the writers of the bridge, but I trust them enough mm-hmm. to not miss on that huge detail. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, let's go to the newsroom, Red Team 3. There are two episodes after this one, uh, the election part one, election part two. They're taking Labor Day weekend off, so no newsroom next week, but then we'll have the finale the two weeks after that. 
how was your payoff for all of this back and forth? We finally had uh, Genoa come to a head. Did did this work for you as a as a culmination? Did it work by on its own? And how interested are you in the last two episodes of the season without this storyline sort of te- continuing to be teased out? Uh, well, I mean, it's not over yet. They still have to sort of resolve what's going on with the lawsuit. Um, I mean, by its very design, there weren't really any surprises. But I do think for what we knew was coming, it was reasonably well executed. I really liked Marcia Gay Harden this week. She got a lot more to do. And... Um, and was generally a lot more convincing to me and interesting to watch. And I think she's a great actress, so it was nice to get her, uh, you know, doing more. Uh, it's funny because at the very end of the episode, we finally get bad newsroom back for like a whole scene. And it's really disconcerting. Uh, you know, Jane Fonda shows back up and I haven't missed her character at all. Zero percent. I said heavily on Lansing back was already kind of cringeworthy. But then to have her be stoned and saying hizzy and have her be totally in their corner and not letting them quit and being really proud of their show for some reason was just it was way too much contrivance for me for one scene yeah i think jane fonda did a great job with what she was given but what she was given i mean was kind of painful the the episode as a whole i liked that they included that scene with don and i don't think the show did well enough um arguing against him because even if there was institutional negligence, you are still absolutely justified in firing a journalist for for doctoring an interview and passing it off as having been undoctored. For he lied about things to his superiors and allowed the th- facts that he know knew to be false to be put on the air. That's a ju- that's a fireable offense. E- even if you're not going to try to you know blame him everything about Genoa on him. That's enough of a reason to fire somebody. So this argument that, well, they should have known that he lied to them was, you know, yes, they should have. They should have figured it out, especially with the shot clock there. People called that like two weeks ago. Yeah, but yeah. the fact that they should have noticed it is not enough reason for him to not be fired. Well, yeah, the whole argument of, oh, if I'm going, then these people should all go too because they're just as responsible just doesn't hold up to scrutiny at all. Well, you could force them to lose their jobs, but I don't understand how he gets a payout that's what i don't understand yeah i it, it, yeah i agree um but i do think as as a piece of drama if you were willing to mm-hmm. overlook certain details i thought it was well acted and well written throughout except for that last scene mm-hmm. which does have me worried for the next couple of weeks and although it's also interesting to me because um all i know about the whole benghazi thing is that it's something that conservative bloggers have loved to throw around as a buzz phrase ever since it happened mm-hmm. and so as a result i ignored everything about it so i don't know anything about that whole situation and i'll be kind of interested as they okay. deal with it R- reminders i'm in canada we didn't care um so uh yeah that part is kind of interesting i, I kind of am curious if this whole storyline with genoa and them losing the trust of the public and being gun shy was concocted so that there would be a reason why they didn't they weren't right about Benghazi when everybody else was wrong. You know, like we we knew and we had the information, but we didn't trust it. So we didn't go with it and we were wrong. It's like, really? Can't you just have them 
screw up once, you know, not without a massive conspiracy, without just can't they just not have high level sources that are only talking to them that aren't talking to CNN or Fox or MSNBC or BBC or any of these other people. So when they got to that scene and it was like, we knew, but we just we didn't go with it because we didn't want to be wrong. again. I was like, come on, guys. Yeah. And it's and it's true that with the main with the Genoa thing, they're only wrong because two people categorically decide to screw them over. Yes. Uh, which, as, as great as Sam Watterson is in the episode, in that confrontation scene in the parking garage, which was hilarious, uh, just the setting. Um, as great as he is in that scene, it does smack of, ha, smack of, mm-hmm. uh, the cards stacked against them too neatly and not enough just plain old human error. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, they try to have them you know, resign at the end, which you know isn't going to happen. Yeah. And so there, there is, like, there, there's definitely Sorkin's, you know, having his cake and eating it too and smearing it on us. Uh, so there is a little bit of that back. So I, I'm kind of seeing the return of some odious mm-hmm. trajectories from the past, but definitely not as bad. And and the great thing about them focusing on the job and this case and the story is that it doesn't leave any time for soap opera BS, uh, which is when the show is generally at its best. It's not very good at this stuff with these characters 99% of the time. So hopefully that continues, but there's basically no way that it will. Yeah, I would have been fine with Jane Fonda's outrage that he's this guy is trying to pull one over on her and trying to bring her down without having her all of a sudden like there was too strong of a sense of support for them from her. If she had just been like, if I fire you, it looks like I'm admitting I was wrong and damn it, I wasn't wrong. This guy is an asshole. You know, like, something like that, a little more nuanced, would have would have really worked for me. The thing I will say, though, is that I was actively looking forward to watching the newsroom this week, and it's been a long time since that was true. So, for what it's since worth... Since the pilot, maybe? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, what wins the week in TV for you, Simon? I'm going to give it to the bridge just for the good bits, uh, and I'll try to ignore the ignorable bits <laughs> the uh the newsroom is it wasn't quite as good as last week and but it's still way better than it is usually so props to them still no word on a second season which i find hilarious <laughs> uh because it got renewed i think at easily by this point in the first season back when it was being terrible all the time mm-hmm. so uh there's just no justice in television we'll see what happens with that i'm gonna give it to i'm gonna split it between Strike Back, Shadow Warfare, and Nine for Nine, two very different hours of uh, of drama. Though maybe Nine for Nine would have fit better in reality this week. But uh, but no, one very action-packed and uh, bloaty and fun and very tense, and one very happy and laid back. And, you know, so like they're like exact opposites on the tonal spectrum. Right, yeah. But they're both a lot of fun, so they're getting the love this week. Now we're going to take a break, listen to some music, and come back with our spotlight on Breaking Bad Confessions.
That was Gonna Romp and Stomp by Slim Rhodes, which was featured in this week's episode of Breaking Bad Confessions, which is back in the spotlight this week. Oh, Breaking Bad, I love you. What uh, pushed it into the spotlight <laughs> for you this week? I think just the sheer desperation we all felt in the final seconds of this episode. And just, and we all, I mean, everyone, you, me, everyone who watches the show, there is not a single soul alive who watched this and did not punch something that they don't get to find out what happens immediately after what we're seeing. And if this, if it's going to do this every week this season, I think I'm just going to die. I don't think I'm going to make it. Controversial response? No, not me. What? I know. And maybe, no? No. Maybe, I mean, obviously it was really effective, but especially as soon as I remembered that the house wasn't burned down uh, in the future, and therefore he's not going to, you know, if, if he was, if we were going to cut to it the next week and it was going to be flames, then that would be different. But because that's not going to happen, and because we saw the resolution to last week's mega cliffhanger, you know, this this week, and it was you know, un, not underwhelming. It was appropriate to the characters, but it didn't have the, oh, man, it's going to be awesome payoff that we were hoping for. Um, and also maybe just because I've seen so many years of Doctor Who where the, every week they ended on a cliffhanger and then spent the first minute or two immediately just getting out of it in a very straightforward way. So it seemed like it was like this life or death thing. It's like, I'm hanging by a ledge and I'm certainly going to, oh, there's a ledge over here. I'll just walk to safety kind of a situation. So Yeah, but th the thing is, I don't care about the fate of the house, even if we hadn't seen it in a flash forward. I don't really care if the house burns down. The house is not one of my favorite characters. Uh, what I'm concerned for is Jesse. And I think that the reason that this gets to be in the spotlight for me is the renewed focus on Jesse. Mm -hmm. who I think has been kind of underserved as a character for a couple of seasons. More than kind of. More than kind of. And it's it's a criticism that I haven't heard leveled at it a lot, which is surprising. And, you know, he's been so one note for so long, and it's, and it's been too bad because Aaron Paul is so damn good in the role, and he gets more notes to play in this one episode than he's gotten in maybe the entire, let's at least last seven or eight episodes combined. Yeah, pretty much most of season five, first half and second half. Yeah, and, and even maybe some earlier than that. Uh, but especially since definitely since the train heist, where, you know, we had a little bit more excitement and then after the train heist. Of course, it all fell apart again for him. And uh, it's just one of those things where I felt like a fool for not having seen it coming. Of course, I should have trusted uh, or realized that I was not trusting the writers by assuming that certain of these elements were going to happen much further down the line, like right before the finale. Of course, Hank had to find out right away because there's only eight episodes and there's so many different dangling th threads. If he didn't find out right away, the storyline would not be able to have been done justice. And of course, Jesse had to figure it out, as it were, this early as well, because again, there's too much going on, especially with all the flash forward stuff that we know has to happen eventually for for it to, to happen any later. And so I think after the second iteration of that this week, I think I'm more prepared for a faster pace and a faster progression of the, the some of the story elements that we're all expecting in, in the next mm -hmm. few episodes. But you're absolutely right. It was just you, seeing Jesse again so brought in to the main focus especially after last week when he was very justifiably and actually thankfully 
almost entirely absent. They didn't have anything for him to do, and they didn't show him, which is what you do when you don't have something for a character to do. Uh, to, to bring him back into the fore and that beautifully satisfying moment of him figuring it out. As soon as he brushed past Huel, this was, and I was watching this with my, my dad and my sister because we're all avid Breaking Bad fans. As soon as he brushed past Huel, I was like, oh crap, he's going to figure it out because he just took his, oh yeah, it's going to be so, and I, I know I sound like a, a uber, uber fangirl right now because frankly I am about this show but it was so much fun and it's something we always praise justified for being fun knowing when it's being awesome knowing when something is satisfying and reveling in it and that was another example of it this week in confessions and i wonder if the entire season is going to amount to a series of climactic punches and slaps to the face because they're (laughs) always so satisfying although i guess saul i mean it's funny because you, you you watch Saul get punched and you think, oh, that's too bad. I like Saul. But then you also think, well, yeah, I like Saul, but he's also kind of responsible for everything bad that's ever happened on this show. Yeah, I, I was uh, I, w- I wanted Saul to die in that moment. I was like, oh, man, I, I want Jesse to kill him, but I don't want Jesse to kill him because I don't know that he could come back from that again. That would like seal his fate, but I in that moment I so wanted Jesse to kill him just so that all of the Better Call Saul stuff would be you know just because it would screw with the audience so much. I was I was really hoping in that moment. What about you? Yeah, yeah. Well, especially especially with talks of the spinoff. Yeah, spinoff as as a prequel. I think I feel like that would be more satisfying. Maybe. Well, we'll have to see how the series heads from here first. Uh. <laughs> I, yeah, everything in that sequence was fantastic. Um, and I know that some people have quibbled with the fact that Jesse knows that Walt is a liar and a horrible human being, and yet somehow didn't figure out that he would be capable of attempt of at least attempting to kill a child. But I don't think that's really an issue for me. I, at least thinking back on what we've seen, I t- Jesse's the kind of person who takes everything on himself and is probably only still alive as a means to continue to punish himself. So it makes sense to me that he wouldn't necessarily think to pin that on Walt and just, just his sheer righteous indignation and his just like hurricane force at realizing that where, where it's like overtaking Huel, not a problem, (laughs) (laughs) not a problem whatsoever. Uh, Even I I think he could have done it even without the gun. Um, Yeah. And and then when I going back to why I'm I'm so breathlessly awaiting the next episode, it's because I want to know what happens to Jesse. I want to know how he makes it out of that episode. If he makes it out of that episode, I think I know the answer, uh, which is Walt Jr. is probably in that house mm. and is going to have some questions. <laughs> um, probably that's what happens. I it, okay. My dream opening for next season for for next episode. Uh, he, we see he's still pouring gasoline, and he accidentally pours some all over Walt Jr.'s breakfast. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what time of day it is, but I know we've been craving some breakfast. He's got a bowl of cereal sitting out, you know, and he's uh, just gone to the bathroom, and, he's, and he comes back and like, he's like, hey, I was going to eat that. You got, you got gasoline in my, in my Cheerios. Uh, <laughs> but we should talk about other non-Jesse aspects of the episode, because a lot happens. I'd be curious to know if you had any notion of what Walt's play was going to be this week, because the whole time until the reveal of the video, I was thinking, what is he doing and how will this work out well for him? And I have to say everything about that. I I felt like an idiot for not figuring it out earlier. And I think it was just 
so beautifully orchestrated. The only regret is that we don't have a shot of Skylar while he's filming it so that we can see how she's processing the fact that he is such an incredible liar. <laughs> Though terrible at lying to her. And I do want to actually mention, I, I did watch Talking Bad this week, mostly because, and oh, my, my recap was out late because we weren't able to start watching the episode for like 45 minutes. I was constantly in fear of Twitter spoilage as I was waiting uh, for my for my sister so we could start. But um, so when I finished, it was basically the start of talking about it. anyways. And also Samuel Jackson was on and it was about as entertaining as you may imagine. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, Samuel Jackson, and, and then, of course, uh, Chris Hardwick talking about the stuff. And uh, Chris Hardwick mentioned that Walt is an amazing liar to everyone, except he's terrible when he's lying to Skylar. Like at the end of this episode, he's like, I'm just uh, the soda machine. It's not uh, latching, so do do do. It's just like it's. Just, <laughs> we've seen him be so such an amazing liar earlier in that episode, and then he's just so comedically horrible at lying at the end. But yeah, so so watching sort of that that realization from her may have been satisfying, but not as satisfying as the reveal. And that's the other reason I mentioned Sam Jackson because he, he when uh, Hardwick mentioned that he hadn't seen it coming. Sam Jackson was like, are you kidding me? Of course. It was so obvious. Of course it had to be, you know. Uh, and I was in the Hardwick camp there. I did not see it coming. I was like, oh, he's going to put himself at the mercy of Hank and trust that that Hank, knowing that he's going to die and that he now has the damning piece of evidence that he can use whenever he wants. You know, like that sort of – I was like trying to come up with this justification in my head. And then like you said, like you said as soon as we they started watching, I was like, oh, well, duh. Of course, what else could it be? I'm a yeah. moron. <laughs> right. And my my thought process was not the same as yours. I knew it couldn't just be a confession because when you say it like, oh, he's just going to give himself up. Like, yeah, but this is Walt. He's the yeah. world's biggest asshole. Why on <laughs> earth would he ever, and we see ever like being that this week with with his son and with Jesse and. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't think we've ever seen him so openly manipulating Walt Jr. Mm. Like, I don't think it's ever been that direct. It's yeah. hard to watch. And, and Jesse, too. The whole, oh, my God, the Jesse sequence. I was, it's funny because I was tearing up watching that scene. And if you think about the dynamic, it's so hard to know why you're so emotionally invested, except that you just really want Jesse to go to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> See, I didn't uh, want Jesse I to go did. to Alaska. No, it's not satisfying. That would not have been satisfying for me because I'm so invested in Hank, and Hank can only do anything if if somebody turns on on Walt. That's the only way. I I didn't want it for the plot, but just as a as a human, imagining Jesse as a real human person, I was like, mm -hmm. oh my god, please get a new Run identity away. and go to Alaska. Please <laughs> do that. Don't go somewhere sunny. It might happen again. Go somewhere cold. Uh, we're making math is a lot harder, I assume. I don't actually know anything about that, I promise. Yeah, that whole sequence is incredible. And it, I couldn't have been the only one seeing the episode title and then seeing how after the cold open, it we get right back into Jesse in the, in, in the interrogation room. I couldn't have been the only one thinking, is this? are they about to do a bottle episode? Because I would kind of love that. <laughs> a whole episode of Jesse and Hank just them in that interrogation room would have been crazy intense. Yes, but I liked that you can see Jesse is so ready to talk, at least to confess his part in things. 
but he can't and won't do it to Hank because of that previous interaction between the two of them. And so it's like you're you're watching going, oh, if you just hadn't two seasons ago, Hank. Oh. Eating the shit out of this guy for no good reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All your problems would go away. At least, to, you know, they would start to go away. And that was just such a wonderful case of series memory. And uh, it was absolutely the right move, even though it undercut what we were all hoping might happen happened this week though ryan johnson is directing an episode later in the season so maybe there is a bottle episode headed our way i know he obviously directed fly one of the early bottle, bottle episodes for the series but um but no i mean just the the performance in that that scene and i like it's it's a thing that breaking bad does so well it takes its time we watch that entire confession and we're riveted yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and just Hank and Marie afterwards just reeling is, uh, and actually there's a shot. I took a, I, I got a screen cap of it. It's on my review. Uh, there's a shot of Hank and Marie just looking at the screen as it goes black. That really reminded me of Michael Haneke's cachet. Uh, and which I just felt like noting because, you know, film nerd, but <laughs> the, everything with them afterwards and, you know, the, him trying to figure out just how screwed he is and realizing that he is very, very screwed. All of the screwed. Um, all of the screwed. Um, and I, I, a part of me really wanted him to at least t- talk to Gomez, mm-hmm. which I feel like will still happen, but clearly wasn't in the cards this week. Gomez is wearing uh, purple, uh, you know. It's team purple. What? Yeah. For those who know, that's Maria's power color. She almost always is wearing purple. So team purple, you know, that's that's a clear costuming choice there to put Gomez in purple. And Marie is actually in black at their dinner, which is slightly different. Sorry, this is what happens when you read Tom Lorenzo's mad style. You start noticing things. But um, yeah, so he should clearly go to Gomez. <laughs> we get two restaurant sequences this week, uh, which are completely divergent. Uh, I actually liked the cold open. I know that there's been some uh, some consternation about that in other places. Uh, first of all, the tone of the scene really reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've seen David Cronenberg's A History of Violence. Yes. But uh, it, it it really reminds me of that slow opening. I think Stephen McCaddy's in that scene. Um, it's something about the tone of it and sort of the mildly Tarantino-esque, but not too showy dialogue and sort of Todd recounting his exploits while leaving out one crucial detail Um, that may have been worth noting. Uh, Clearly, Todd is going to play a very important role in what happens from here on out, and I have no idea what it is. I know that it can't be good, uh, because Plemons is is really good at just sort of... He... I mean, he was so good at being so goofy and sweet and charming on Friday Night Lights... And for some reason, he's that same quality makes him equally good at just being quietly creepy as hell. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but man, that kid's got range. Definitely. Well, that opening sequence didn't work as well for me as soon as they got into the bathroom. The opening phone call worked great for me. The the recounting of the, the train heist worked really well. And the not subtle, hey, look, he's got swastika tattoos. Uh, the first time was, you know, fine. The second time I was like, okay, dude, we get it. He's got swastika tattoos. Why are you showing us this again and zooming in on his hand as he, you know, there, there was some, there was a lack of subtlety to a couple elements this week. And that was one of them. Uh, and, and also just the whole, I'm watching going, it's, it's Kevin Rankin. Give him something to do. Um, cause of course yeah, we yeah. both enjoy that actor. He's playing Kenny there. And, um, and I, so I guess that, that scene didn't work for me because I didn't 
understand its purpose. I understood the purpose right. of the slow, very methodical cold open last week. I, you know, maybe it'll come into play this week, but it, it felt just very, and now he's going to wipe the blood so that in case you didn't figure it out, they just came from massacring all of those people. And, you know, it just felt a little too holding of my hand. And the other moment like that was the just so didactically on the nose, if you're looking for it at all, lighting of Anna Gunn as Skylar in the office in all white with the light streaming on her, all just bathing her in light while Walt is in the shadowiest corner of a room that has ever had a it's shadow. Ever been shadowy. That is, yeah, yeah. Saying it's all right, and she's looking concerned and staring into the light, and yet turning away from the light to look at him. It's like, dude, we get it. We get right. it. Right. Suddenly they're in the black lodge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty uh, much. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I was so glad we got that uh, the taqueria they're in. The the Fridays from Office Space. Yeah, the Fridays from Office Space and uh, and their their waiter Trent or whatever his name was, uh, just oh the poor bastard. Uh, oh, everything man. about that scene too uh, was yeah. a hilarious and b um, it I I just loved even though he's screwed, Hank still manages to totally call Walt on his bullshit in exactly the appropriate way. Mm-hmm. You know, just when he says, you know, man up, this is yeah. what you have to do. Well, and he doesn't know he's screwed yet, but but still, he knows he's in trouble, but he doesn't, yeah. he hasn't seen the thing yet. But yeah, no, absolutely. I absolutely agree. I loved, but, well, I loved, loved two things. First of all, Trent's timing was perfect and well done and such a memorable bit part. But I loved Marie. Why don't you just kill yourself? I was like, oh, I oh, knew yes. I liked her. That was like the verbal equivalent of her bitch lap last week. And I was like, oh, Betsy mm-hmm. Brandt knocking it out of the park. Well, and it also, I'm glad you mentioned Fly earlier, because I think it connects to, um, I feel like Fly was the last episode, or very close to the last episode, where Walt kind of evinced a little bit of humanity. Or at least that was, I guess, you know, that was near the end of season three, right? And I guess mm-hmm. the, the season three climax, saving Jesse, etc., was kind of his last bid for humanity uh, before he totally lost every single last shred of it. And it kind of begs the question, you know, is, was he right? Like, should he, you know, should he just have died? Like, was that the, are we talking about parallel universes? And that was the, he somehow landed in the wrong one. And he, he didn't get to leave his life as, uh, as a, as a good father and husband. And now he's this instead you know, where he discovers this other part of himself. I, I, I like thinking about those things. But yes, uh, Marie and her... Uh, <laughs> I did not see that line coming or that line reading and the strength of it. And it was uh, it was a fantastic moment. Yeah, definitely. And uh, looking at Walt, and obviously anyone who's been listening to the Tellers for a while knows I have very strong feelings about Walt and have had them for years now, that he's just a terrible, terrible person and... And he's not become a terrible person. He was a terrible person. And we're peeling the layers beneath. He just didn't have the courage to be his terrible self back in season one. And he found the courage later. <laughs> courage, yes. Yeah, as it were. <laughs> but uh, but this episode is where it really, really becomes obvious to me that he will kill anyone. Right now, I he, I don't think he would kill Walt Jr. or Holly maybe not Skylar, but 
given how he treats Jesse this week, he obviously was happy to kill him if he had to. If there wasn't an easier way to get, to get rid of him, he would kill him. And as soon as he made that tape about Hank, that, as far as I'm concerned, is the equivalent of him being willing to kill Hank. Yeah, he's absolutely willing. He would, I think he would love to kill Hank. I think he would love to kill Hank and Marie right now. I, I don't think he's willing. I think he actually would just take great pleasure in it. Um, I mean, he. I think he'd settle for destroying them, but... Uh, anyway, I mean, now with what's happened uh, in terms of the tape and Jesse's non-confession and whatever's going to happen with him, I mean, how do you have any theories as to how any of this could shake out in the way that we see in the flash forward? No, but I, I, don't, I have no idea how we get to the flash forward. But I think there is a big clue if I'm going to start conspiracy theorying. And honestly, it's fun. That's was what the last season of a beloved show is for, right? Um, the, Absolutely. The, the big clue for me this week is, is Todd so casually throwing around Mr. White. He just told both of those guys Heisenberg's identity. And after you have Mr. White searching out a chemist capable of doing this named Mr. White in this area of the world, not going to be hard. So if Todd is being this loose-lipped, it would be easy for either of those two guys to tell somebody else. And, and I, th I think that we're going to see a trace back to them. If not Jesse, I don't know if Jesse makes it out. I was so convinced of that before the season started, but I am less convinced now. So either Jesse turns him in or it gets back and Todd turns him in is what I'm anticipating at this point. He gets flipped and Lydia would talk like, like that. So if they find Lydia, she's happy to roll <laughs> yeah. over on him. Yeah. I mean, and we, we've always been so convinced that the whole world knows about Heisenberg because of the state of the house. But I'm not sure. How do we know it isn't Jesse who just scrolls Heisenberg on the wall or one of the associates, uh, you know, we, and, and maybe, you know, the neighbor drops her <laughs> drops her groceries because well, it's just kind of scary and hasn't been there. Anymore. Or because she saw something but hasn't has been too scared to go to the cops. You know, something happened at the house, but she, you know, she's terrified she doesn't tell anyone. Yeah, there's a lot of things that could happen. Yeah, certainly. What's your prediction is it with the, with to get us to the the finale? Uh well, despite what I just said, I think that the public <laughs> uh the public knowledge has to happen uh because of a certain celebrity cameo that's already been leaked uh that you may or may not know about, so I'm not I do not know that. about it. Do not tell me, anyone. Okay. That's all of you listeners. I don't okay. want to know. Based on that, I feel like the public knowledge thing has to happen. But other than that, uh, I threw the question out because I was hoping you were going to give me something solid because I really have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jesse won't. I think Jesse's kind of doomed. Um, yeah. But it's not going to happen right away because the show loses its soul if that happens. Uh, or at least a good chunk of it. Has the show not already lost its soul through Jesse's decision this week? Curious what you think about that. He he's basically giving up any chance at a, f at a future and a life because he cares more about destroying something than about preserving any life. His life or anyone else's. No, I don't think that's true at all because it huh? at least shows that he has a spark of something that he has some desire to do something even if it is to destroy i think he's been such a husk for so long that him throwing gasoline on in walt's house is the most positive thing he's done in like a full season <laughs> and i think there is a lot more to tell with jesse i also i was kind of expecting him to die this week 
based on like how the episode went. Like I don't know exactly why, but just that performance from Aaron Paul, I don't think enough can be said of how just even that hug, that hug with Walt where he sort of slumps. And I, I was trying to decide if I thought he was slumping into the hug as in he wants to believe it so hard, which to go back to what you're saying earlier of why he has allowed himself to believe the, these lies from Walt. I think he just wanted it to be true so much because he's so desperate for a father figure that he was doing all the work himself, actually, not even Walt. Uh, but is he slumping into that hug because he wants to believe it so much or because he's just too exhausted to keep fighting? Uh, no, I think I think both are, are equally valid. I think uh, th they also they leave that ambiguity open by ending the scene when they do so we don't get that tearful conversation of yes i'll go i'm sorry blah blah or whatever that mm -hmm. I don't, i'm glad we don't have to see that yeah um but and i'm also glad that only a few minutes later all that sentimentality is out the window <laughs> and there's not going to be any more jesse listening to anybody and anymore ever again period do we want to say anything else about um the various Walt, the Walt Jr. scene, the the gun in the at the car wash, that music, that perfect music, both at the the dinner and then also at the car wash at the end, just the music, the tinkling, you know, like such perfect timing in that moment. Any any thoughts about either of those scenes before we wrap up here? We haven't talked about Skylar. Uh, Skylar doesn't get a whole lot to do this week. Uh, she mostly just. That's a line in the sand. If there wasn't already a line in the sand, helping him frame her family, that severed any ties that she will ever have. She can't come back from yeah, that. Yeah, that is true. Like She doesn't get a lot to do in terms of performance this week, but in, ter in terms of seriousness, in terms of her character moves, yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal this week. And she is uh, almost as far from redemption as Walt is at this point. So... Uh, it's, I mean, she hasn't killed anybody, uh, except, well, unless <laughs> the you scale of badness Ted. is nowhere near, no, this doesn't even compare, yeah. but for, ways for her to get back to where she was are, they're gone. She yeah. can't get back her old life. Yeah. And it almost makes you wish that, at least I kind of wish that she'd gotten, she'd broken bad a little sooner so that we didn't have those couple seasons early in the show's run of her not really getting, getting anything interesting to do, yeah. but, um, it does put her in an interesting place and I'll be... Also interested to see how the toxic male viewer Twitter sphere <laughs> sort of continues to react to her as as she sort of is seemingly attached at the hip to Walt and how long that continues, which I don't think is going to be the entire time. Yeah. Given the number of comments I read online as I was furiously reading reviews after I put up my recap and while I was waiting for your review, Simon, last week this was about how... Um, this episode was such a waste because it focused on those two shrews or those two bitches or the, the, the two worst characters or the, the people who are destroying the show or can't they just shut up already? Um, and we thought it was a fantastic episode last week and two very interesting and very underserved characters finally got some time. But given, you know, the amount of vitriol I saw depicted towards Skylar, which we kind of expect, but also towards Marie. I'm I'm sure we will hear from a certain uh, cretinous underbelly of the fan base just really throughout this entire season. Yeah, well, <clears throat> if it makes you feel any better, one day every single one of those people will die. Yes, as will we. Yes, sadly. Other final thoughts. I guess just the the scene with Walt Jr. was 
I mean, I felt kind of bad for RJ Mitty trying to play that when it's just he's so clearly being duped. Um, it's a hard, I feel like that's a hard thing to play, trying to keep that sincerity when everybody, it's just such, so clearly a travesty. I thought he did pretty well. Um, and then I think just, uh, my last takeaway is I can't wait to see what cliffhanger is. It looks like they're going to have cliffhangers every week now. That's what I'm guessing. And I can't wait to see what the next one is. And, uh, I really enjoy that structure from, you know, from Alias, from Doctor Who, from any number of these different uh, sort of serials that I've watched over my various TV years. And uh, I think it's a perfect fit for this show, too. So I can't wait to see what they cook up next. Excellent directing. We haven't mentioned the director. Excellent writing. We haven't mentioned the writer. Michael Slovis, uh, that, who is the DP for the entire show, as far as I know, uh, directed this one. And it looks great. I especially like the shot of, uh, I think it's Walt in the bathroom, just over the mirror with a hint of reflection mm-hmm. it was a very striking shot written by jennifer hutchison yeah and i'm just trying to imagine what the episode 15 cliffhanger is going to be and just like pulling my hair out even just thinking about it <laughs> now for our for our death pool count we've had still that just the one shootout no explosions no chemist no, no, no montages this week one montage right because there's one last week um no breakfasts what else? Didn't we get two montages? We got a montage last week and one in, in the first week? Yeah, but we started counting at the second episode. Okay, fair enough. So, the first... Uh, no se- breakfast. No breakfast. One... Do we count last week's with Jesse? Is that a car crash? Uh, no. No? Okay. Yeah. It, it, it couldn't tell if it crashed or if he just got out. Um. So, okay. So, we're still pretty just at one. It sounds like we all overbid. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, there's still time. There's five more episodes. There's five more. It's five gonna, more episodes. It's going to go to 11. Okay, well, that wraps up our, our lengthy spotlight here on, uh, on on Breaking Bad Confessions. Now we're going to take a break, listen to some music, and rather than our DVD shelf, we're going to come back with our Make You Watch-a-thon for anniversary, for year two of the Televerse. So we'll be right back after this. I love my country, Botswana, and I love Africa, and I want to do good with the time God has given me. I'm going to open a detective agency. The bad men better watch out. The number one ladies detective agency. If a woman came to you suspicious of her husband, you could find out whether he is unfaithful. Beautiful. All my life I've been saving myself for such a woman. I suspect this is not a case for which we will be receiving payment. You investigate, detect. Call every insurance company and ask them about missing fingers. Ouch, ouch. Do not worry about me. I am made of strong stuff. You are fabulous. Yeah. 
as we mentioned earlier, it is our two-year anniversary. Go us! What? And so... Ah. The Make You Watch-a-Thon is back, and that's where Simon and I, rather than a standard DVD shelf where we bring on a guest and ask them to choose something that they would like to talk about, we each pick something, and it can be anything. It can be a continuing series, it can be a canceled series, it can be, as long as it's television, it's fair game. And last year, I made you watch Doctor Who, which is really the whole point of this, was to make you watch Doctor Who, because you're such an anti-Whovite. And uh, and you made me watch 30 for 30. This year, we have uh, slightly different picks. And for the first segment, first half of it, we're going to be talking the number one ladies detective agency. And when you hear what uh, the picks are for the second half, you, you won't be surprised to hear that I chose this show. Now, Simon, had you even heard of the number one ladies detective agency before? Yeah, I had. And we had a copy of it at, back at Movie Land when I uh, when I worked there at the video store. So I was certainly aware of it. Uh, I knew, uh, I'd say I knew a lot about it. I knew it was based on a, on a book, or a, I thought a book series, but apparently just a book. No, it's a series. Uh, oh, is it a series? There we go. Now, there's something I didn't know. And, uh, I knew that Anthony Mangello was involved. Uh, of course, the director of Talent, Mr. Ripley, breaking and entering, a bunch of other stuff. Very prestigious fellow. English patient. English patient, yes, of course. Uh, I forgot it because I've actually still never seen it. <laughs> and, um, and I knew, uh, Jill Scott, you know, sort of, who I knew really only as a neo soul singer uh, was the star. That, so I I knew a few things about it, but yeah, it never occurred to me to ever actually watch it. <laughs> now, for those who don't know, which given the ratings this show got, is almost assuredly everyone listening. Uh, maybe there's a couple of you who actually have heard of or seen this show before, but most of you probably haven't. This was it was also developed for TV by Richard Curtis along with Mangella. And when you watch the show, that courtesy vibe is. You can feel it. Um, but this is a story of a, a female detective in Botswana whose father passes away and he leaves her his cattle. He's a, he's a wealthy man and he leaves her his cattle, which she sells, uh, not wanting to be constrained to the basically a, a ranch by herself in the middle of nowhere. So she sells the cattle and she moves to Gaborone, which is the capital. And and opens up, you know, puts out her shingle as a detective, and it's procedural, and the it's set as we said in in Africa. It was this was the first production to actually be filmed in Botswana, and uh, it's it's just a beautifully positive series without pretending that Africa and Botswana in particular don't have any problems. This gives a portrait of of a, a part of Africa that we don't really see on the news because the, half the people aren't killing the other half of the people. And uh, it, I think it's a beautiful show. I really like almost all of the performances. It was a great discovery for me a few years back. And I made you watch it. <laughs> so what you did, did. What did you think? Um, it was interesting. The, uh, the it, it opens with a movie-length pilot, which is directed by Mangela. And surprisingly, I thought that was the weakest Okay. Uh, segment of the series, I thought there was, considering the amount of time they had, uh, a lot of it seemed weirdly compressed and piloty. Uh, just a, a lot of chunks of exposition of just this is how this happened, and here we are. It's like you could have, come on, Mangela, you could have, you could have communicated some of this in a little, slightly more interesting fashion. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think after, I'd say near the end of the pilot, uh, when you when you start to get more of the, of the character interaction. Uh, and then when you start the proper series itself, I think it finds its groove pretty quickly. 
Uh, one thing that's interesting about it is that when you talk about uh, its optimism, it's um, it's not as I think that what's nice about it is that it is optimistic and it's cheerful, but it's not cartoonish, mm-hmm. uh, which I think it could have been with even just a slight tip to the left, like it, it you know. Go go too far in the direction of, of cheery optimism, and you end up with Sue Thomas FBI, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know if you've ever watched that. But... I have not, but I, I'm familiar. <laughs> oh, it's something for the next make you watch a thon, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, it feels like a show that earns most of its optimism, which is which is interesting. Um, although, <laughs> as long as we're talking about optimism, I have to be a bit of a dick about something. <laughs> I'm sure I've discussed elsewhere uh, Jenji Cohen's comments about how she sneaks uh, stories of people of color and other and, you know, unusual body type, sexuality, etc. Th- through having a white protagonist, which is not something that the Ladies Detective Agency does. However, I would find it I find it impossible to, to imagine that someone without Anthony Minghella's prestige and cachet would have been able to get away with getting this made. Perhaps. But the, the author of the books is white as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, obviously, as as Cohen discussed, it, you know, as, as she stated, it, she has a hard time getting stories of about people of color or just not bl- white, probably blonde, very pretty young people straight, made also. straight, <laughs> straight made, and 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 so she puts one of them in, and then one of those. I guess very very advertiser friendly leads, and then peoples the rest of the show with more interesting and diverse characters. Here, yes, uh, it it took two white British guys to get this show made, but as we'll discuss, it lasted seven episodes. Uh, so obviously, this is not a success story we're talking about. Yeah, here. it's it's kind of a moot point. I just yeah. felt like bringing it up. But that doesn't take away from from what the show actually is. And when we talk about the optimism, the thing, I and mean, it's it's what you talked about, Simon, about it walking walking in line. It's not that bad things don't happen, and it's not that this crime this you know crime procedural doesn't have you know very violent and and dark things that happen. It's that the main character, our point of view character, and most of the main characters that surround there, most of the supporting characters, that is, all just have this inherent belief that people are good. Right now it feels like in order to get a TV show made, you need to be dark, you need to have an anti-hero, you need to have violence, you need to dwell in that. And a lot of the the shows that we picked for actually our, our top 10 of the year so far were shows that, filled, that fit that category with the exception of Bunheads, which got canceled, and Ben and Kate, which got canceled. And I would put this right in there, and it also got canceled. I don't know why happy TV or optimistic TV is not popular right now, but it's something that I'm, I'm going to keep championing these shows that really don't, aren't convinced that everyone at their core is evil and, and greedy and only out for themselves. Because I think it's a message that needs to get out there and needs to be more embraced. Well, I mean, there are there. There is the share of greedy, not so well-intentioned characters, but they mm-hmm. they tend to be on the margins as opposed to the focus, which yeah. is, I think, the, the difference. I'm kind of surprised, even in retrospect, that HBO went for this show at all, considering that it doesn't fit their brand. And it doesn't yeah. fit anyone else's brand either, but there's... 
virtually no violence whatsoever. There's no sex. There's no nudity. It's basically PG. I didn't even notice any swearing. No, uh, they don't. ever. So (laughs) uh, there are some vaguely tense moments here and there. Uh, There's some uh, monkeys. I don't know. There's nothing to really... I guess the monkeys are naked. Oh, goodness. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it was a real coup that it, that it got made at all. Cause again, like HBO would be the only ones. I, and it's an HBO BBC co-production. Yes. Yeah. Like it's, it feels more like much more like a BBC show than an HBO show. Definitely. Well, let's get into some of these, these performances and these, these actors. I know you said you were familiar with Jill Scott, uh, you know, in her role as a, as an artist, as a singer, uh, I hadn't, I had heard of her before I recognized her, but I hadn't really seen much of, of her, uh, performance or I didn't really know that much about her. And I thought she was wonderful as, as Precious Ramotswe, Ma, Ma Ramotswe, the, the lead here. What did you think? Cause I didn't have that other reference to draw, draw upon. Did she, did she feel like Precious or did she just feel like it's a singer trying to act? No, I think she does a really good job. And I think there's a reason that she beat out Oprah Winfrey and yeah. some other sort of more obvious choices for the role. Winfrey would have been super distracting to me, by the way. Yeah. Uh, in a way that Jill Scott and Neo Soul Singer wouldn't, uh, apparently isn't. Um, I think it's amazing that they asked her to gain weight for the role. Mm-hmm. I think this might, that might be a first in all of female casting. <laughs> female uh, in, in, on film or TV. I've never Let's heard see. of that anywhere Kaylee else. on Firefly. That's the only other time I've heard it. There you go. Um and um, also, apparently, she, when she started to gain weight, she uh, she gained seven pounds in a week, and she was like, "Wait a second, and then <laughs> found out she was pregnant." So I don't know what the timeline for that was, but it sounds like it would have been fun. Um, no, I think she does a very good job. I think that in the pilot, especially, again, I have to rag on this a little bit. There's a little bit of laziness in terms of the characterization, where, and I guess the it's in the writing as well, where. There's a lot of characters who, uh, like, sort of straw man characters who are like, you know, here's here's the pretty thin people and they're kind of obnoxious and here's <laughs> and here's precious and she's got a traditional African figure and isn't she great and like and there's a few moments like that early on that kind of grate on you but then as the series itself actually goes on there's less and less of that which I was very thankful for because I feel like that's like that's a that's like sort of counter stereotyping that doesn't help either. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, thankfully, that show, you know, sort of ditches that quite quickly. But I think that she actually gives a surprisingly versatile performance. And I, th- I, th- I think that when they throw in those notes of grief and sadness and loss, um, you know, because the show isn't all sunshine and flowers, uh, I think she handles those very well. And uh, she also, um, you know, obviously the stuff that happens later in the show with with uh, JLB, which who who I'm sure we're going to talk about in a moment, I think she handles all that stuff really well, and they have a great connection. Yeah, and it's it's. A surprisingly deep character, I think, for one that could just be one of those blue sky sort of uh, protagonists. Like, like I don't think I think Precious would be very, you know, she's not quippy enough, but she would be very at ease that character on on a USA kind of show. Definitely. And uh, but they give her an an abusive ex husband. She lost a child after being beaten by her husband, and yet she's still is attracted to him or still feels that pull, even though she knows that it's destructive and not helpful. She is a woman who is recovering from 
having been a victim of abuse and even though she's so positive and she's so smart and she's so kind you can see her struggling in moments throughout this season with with healing and getting to a place and that's why when she meets JLB Matacone uh or Matacone uh who is played by by Lucien Masmati who viewers will be far more likely to recognize as uh Salador San from Game of Thrones and there there's a potential romance there she can't do that she can't really engage because she knows that she is not fixed yet and that she if she if if she engages with JLB and they they start a relationship and she's not she doesn't have her head screwed on right she will hurt this man and and end up alone again and and who, who who may very well be the nicest man in television history very 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 well maybe yes absolutely he's just like he's just the nicest person ever and and i love that that the show sees where he's coming from where he's like no you're amazing let's we should be together and and uh and this is just silly and but then it also it shows us just as much his her perspective and and it really you know that that JLB character he respects her and he understands and he and he 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 goes well, okay well obviously I this is not going to happen yet but this is still my friend and and they build towards that relationship by the end of the season you know it's it's when they do finally get together it, at least for me it's so satisfying. Well, I think it's also satisfying because you get the sense they could have dragged it on so very much longer. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. And at that point, it would have been, if they'd gone another even four or five, well, assuming the show had lasted longer, if they'd made that transition take any longer, I think we would have started to get annoyed with Precious, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. No, definitely. And uh, we should also talk about some of these other characters. And JLB, he's more than just nice we should say he's also uh, very fastidious. He's also uh, very, he's protective of Precious. He has two young employees who uh, are, are hilarious, hilarious <laughs> frankly. <laughs> it, but he's, all, he's, he's a very uh, fully fledged, rounded character in the vein that I think usually gets short shrift in these kind of shows. They often set up, when they're setting up these love triangles, they set up the 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 boring good guy and the the sexy bad guy and we're supposed to be rooting for our protagonist to go after the sexy bad guy for example uh vampire diaries stefan and damon right uh and it's so wonderful to see the air quotes boring good guy not be boring for once yeah no he's uh he's a really he's a well-rounded character I mean, again, when the when the series started and we find out he's like a kindly widower, I was like, okay, this is another kind of a cliche. Like, mm -hmm. the the nice guy has to be a widower because <laughs> it's the only explanation for how he can be this old and not married, mm -hmm. and you know, not creepy. Yeah. Uh, so you know that aspect, I was like, mm. but yeah, yeah. Over time, he really he reveals himself actually rather quickly to be a, a, a fully rounded character in a way that love interests like not main characters of mm -hmm. shows don't often get to be regardless of gender. Yeah. Uh, so that's great. It took me a couple more episodes than that to come around to Desmond Dubé, who plays BK, the, um, the salon owner. Basically, oh, I like BK. <laughs> I, I, I eventually, I think I didn't really like BK until the episode where BK and JLB are undercover cops. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, 
And I think that's when the character really clicked for me. Because yeah, before definitely. before that, there's definitely some shticky elements to that character. Yeah, they're, they're there. I think that's true. And that's the only of the main characters to not be featured in the books. But uh, And so maybe there's an element there where they didn't have books of material to draw on to really flesh out the character and, and even just to help the performer. But that that role, I mean, it did really work for me having that other, you know, more schemey kind of voice in in the group to really to push precious and and everything and the other main character we got to talk about is anika noni rose as mama kutsi and i i just love her in this she's so good and you put this next to some so many other places we've seen her i wish she was this engaging on the good wife it seriously took me three episodes to remember that she was on the good wife and i was like wait a second because mm-hmm. uh, i've never seen dream girls uh and i I, I, just, I don't think i've actually seen her in that many things and uh, it's just so, it's a hundred million miles from what she was doing on The Good Wife, just in terms of just, I mean, obviously her style, but also her, her body movement, her uh, her general screen presence is, is completely transformed. And uh, uh, again, I, give it, I guess it's a trend for everyone, but her, I, I feel like when, when, we, when you hit that pilot, she's a character who has maybe uh, two notes to play, like uptight and anxious uh-huh. and she just kind of does that all the time um and then gradually uh like with all the other characters she kind of deepens although i i'd say she's probably the character who's hurt most by the shortened runtime mm-hmm. because we don't get to see like we obviously we see a bit of her and her brother and there's a little tiny bit of progression with that kind of mm-hmm. but other than that she mostly just does her own thing and uh so I th- it's really too bad we don't get to see where that where they were going with that character well, and it's nice to see the the secretary slash assistant character be the one poking the the detective about things as opposed to to vice versa. Whereas, uh, you know, Sh- Sherlock Holmes and Watson, Watson's the stable one. Sherlock is the eccentric one. This is the opposite. Right, yeah. You know, where where Precious is really chill, laid back, and Mama Kutsi uh, is is going. We this is ridiculous. This is the 21st century. Where's my freaking computer? A typewriter? Are you kidding me? This is for... Oh, my God. We need a phone, <laughs> you know? Also, not part of the principal cast exactly, but Patterson Joseph, who I know mostly uh, from Peep Show, which may very well be next year's Make Kate Watch pick, assuming you haven't, you don't see it in between. Um, I think it's a fantastic show, and he's really great on that, and he's great here, too. Um, again, like... It, the, you know, these sort of more two-dimensional elements do crop up, and when he shows up, he really, he's practically twirling his mustache, <laughs> but yeah. uh, thankfully he can pull it off because he's just got that level of smarm, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's again, it's too bad that he comes in so late, and it's such a short run that we don't get to see how that character would evolve, if, if in fact he would. And I think the show actually does a better job giving layers to the ex-husband, even though he's really only in one episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, I think they do a really nice job sort of re- like, he's such a one dimension, like not even two dimensional, but just one dimensional asshole when you first see him. And then I, through some careful writing and good performances, you managed to get a little bit of pathos for that character and a little bit of redemption, just the tiniest bit it, in a way that's totally in keeping with the rest of the show. I, it is too bad though, that in that last episode, they decided to find room for, uh, this is what we're doing later tease. Yeah. That was really uninteresting to me. Oh, well, and the, the actor playing her ex-husband, Note Makoti, is Colin Salmon, who viewers of 
BBC programming will recognize. He's, you know, the, a lot of these actors they bring in for one or two episodes, as I'm sure we'll mention a few more of them, are very familiar faces. Mm-hmm. And he was on he was on Arrow last season. I'm actually not sure if he's still on the show, but he was um, he was in the early run of Arrow at least of season one. So you'll recognize him from there. Also, Idris Elba. Yeah. Uh, although, frankly, the um, the person who showed up for one episode who most excited me was CCH Pounder A. I have to always mention that's the greatest name <laughs> in televisual history. B, uh, why is she not in everything? Because she's so great. Yes. So, so great. She was so amazing on The Shield, and she's very good here in, in her in her one episode. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm just always floored that she's not on my TV all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that was really fun for me watching this show. If you get into the sort of the vibe of the show, it's really is laid back show. Then when all these different, like really recognizable faces, because of course, as we said earlier, we're in, they filmed in Botswana, all the extras and, and um, some, some of the smaller parts are all people from Botswana. It feels very much of a place. And we'll talk a little bit more about that too, though we're already going long. Um, but seeing these huge stars come in and be sharing these, the scene with, you know, it's not like they had a film industry in Botswana. The producers bought a chunk of land and signed a 10-year lease. And they still theoretically could decide they want to do a second season and get the gang back together because they own the property for another like four years. Um, though it's obviously never going to happen, but to see, you know, just these, all these fun faces just sort of pop up for an episode was, was really entertaining. I was actually thinking about writing the producers to see if they're doing anything with that land. Cause if not, I might just go there and <laughs> check up in the detective agency for Definitely. a little while. It's a fun set. And, uh, they did, they did a really great job of establishing the feel of Botswana. From what I've heard, it's very accurate. Obviously I've never been I shouldn't say obviously, but I have never been to Africa, so I don't know what this corner of Africa, you know, is like. But it seems like this is probably a good approximation. And uh, just the details that we get that apparently in Botswana, it's all about the hair. Like, yes, clothes, yes, shoes, yes, accessories, but really it's all about the hair. And that makes, uh, you know, that's a little bit of flavor that you wouldn't have necessarily anticipated. And just like the kind of music, all the music on the show is by... Botswanan artists like all the pop songs and everything and and it's just it's it's just a corner of the world you're not going to see anywhere else on television no not at all and the you're right the vibe the feel of it is totally and the look of it is totally distinct uh mm-hmm. the music is totally distinct uh, i have absolutely no it's possible that they actually used only you know um zimbabwean pop and i didn't notice so <laughs> <laughs> and and someone in the music department screwed up it's entirely possible but as far as i know uh, they did their best to keep it authentic, and um, and that really helps with the the genial vibe of the whole thing. Well, and it also just looks gorgeous because they they you know drive through these stretches of wilderness that are just beautiful. As you know, we walk, follow Precious driving from one you know area to another. Every now and again, we'll get these nature shots, and it's just it's it's an adver- it's it's a seven episode advertisement for Botswana. Uh, tourism, which is why if you Google number one ladies detective agency trailer, you'll get a set, you know, like there'll be one from HBO and like three from Botswana and tourism because it just makes you want to go. And I do wonder, uh, again, there's the cynic in me rising. Um, I do wonder, not that it hurts the show, but if, like, have you read the books by any chance? My mom has read them. And so I, and I think I've like listened to like books on tape a little bit. 
Okay, I'm just curious because the the show like it does acknowledge problems in Botswana and Africa in general, but they're really off to the side. Like we see, we actually witness very little unpleasantness, and I and I do wonder if that's if that's organically from the source material or if that's yeah. more sort of encouragement from the Botswana tourism department. No, that Botswana is one of the more stable African countries and has been for quite a long time. And so that is that is from the books and apparently also from truth. <laughs> the the unstable parts of Africa are different areas. This is this has been a very peaceful part of that continent for a very long time, at least comparatively. All right. Just curious. I, I also love the little details of uh, the was it he was a was it a Zimbabwean a dentist? A uh, Nigerian Nigerian dentist. dentist. Yeah, no one trusts the Nigerian dentist. Yeah, it it. it you know, some of the little details like that I thought were really entertaining or interesting at the very least. Any other thoughts on number one ladies detective agency? Uh, we, we briefly mentioned, um, JLB's two mechanics who I think are probably some of the best characters. I like that. I, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a show where, where like boss and employees had such a, such a, you know, they, they really love JLB and like are really are, are rooting for him and really want him to get with Precious or anyone really and uh, and sort of move on with his life. And anyway, the, the episode where they celebrate his birthday is quite sweet. Uh, mm-hmm. And and yeah, when I, I will say that when JLB and uh, Precious do finally get together, it is quite even though it only takes six episodes, uh, it, it is like a kind of an FEM moment. Yeah, totally. Uh, and I and I would have really liked to have seen where they were go- where they were going with that. I'm assuming the next episode didn't open with the maid shooting Precious to death. That probably wasn't <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> no, the in the book series they get married, they adopt children from the orphanage, they they build a life together, and I would have loved to see that on the show, but unfortunately, alas, alack. Only seven episodes, though. As we said, that that final episode is when they get together. So there is a, some, a sense of arc and closure to it. That you know. So if don't don't not watch the show because it gets because it got canceled. Please yeah, don't. It's not, it's watch not the Breaking show. Bad. It doesn't end, and you're like, what? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's much more casual than that. Yeah, and I got I got to say between this and then the the two shows we're going to talk about next. I'm thinking of the Venn diagram of people who have seen all three of these shows, and I feel like it's just us. It's entirely possible. There might be a, a couple of, like, cable execs uh-huh. for some reason. Or uh, there might be, like, one person who is involved in all three productions, maybe, by accident. But, yeah, it's it's incredibly... If, if we, we should start a club if we find any more people. Yeah, let us know. If you have seen Number One Ladies Detective Agency, let us know. If you have also seen... Uh, on death row and first person, which we we'll will say talk or about first person. We'll say or. or okay. At least two of the three. I would love to hear from you because these are three very underseen and underappreciated shows. I'm glad you liked it. I was concerned you'd be like, eh, it's it's minor procedural crime. So I'm glad you seem to have liked it. Yeah, I think that was my feeling for for most of the pilot, but I think it does grow on you rather quickly. Nice. Well, uh, let's take a break, listen to the clips and music from the other two shows we'll be doing in the Make You Watch-a-Thon, and come right back. I had more time than all mass murderers in the prison system that I know of. They took away all hope for me. And when you do that to a person, anything is possible. You dream of what? I dream of past events. I dream of my ex-wife. 
but always yes. ends outside of prison. Yeah. Yeah. Prison doesn't exist in your, no. in your dreams. No. The worst part and the worst thing that I have to face is having someone tell me that you're guilty of a crime that I know that I was never ever there to commit. I could look to my left and I could see the doorway, I could see the gurney, I could see the arm boards, and I could see the windows where the witnesses watched through there. So I was li literally looking at my death while I was sitting there eating. They say I'm remorseless, I'm not. You're going to kill me now. Is that retribution? Is that vengeance? Is that punishment? It's like I've been through so much and I've gotten so dirty and I can't wash it off. And the only thing that, that I can do is, is dream about how I would wash all the filth. The death penalty exists in 34 states of the United States of America. Currently, only 16 states actually perform executions. Executions are carried out by lethal injection. Utah is the only state that until recently allowed the option of a firing squad. As a German, coming from a different historical background, and being a guest in the United States, I respectfully disagree with the practice of capital punishment. This amazing event raises great questions that are almost mystical in nature. What is chance? What is luck? What is fate? you're so sure you're going to make it home tonight. I was 46 years old the day I walked into that carpet. I had the world ahead of me. I was a captain on a major U.S. airline. I had a beautiful, healthy family, loving wife, great future. And at 4 o'clock, I'm trying to stay alive. Watchathon this year, I chose, as we discussed earlier, the humanist sort of very positive number one ladies detective agency. And Simon, what did you choose? Well, I chose two. Well, I thought short series because I was gonna, only going to select a few episodes of the second one. You ended up watching all of it because you're silly. Uh, but the first one I chose was uh, no one can seem to agree if it's called Death Row or On Death Row, but the uh, documentary series from Werner Herzog, which is only four episodes, uh, and the second series is called First Person created by uh, Errol Morris. I'm curious, though, that you choose to call number one latest detective agency humanist as though these series aren't humanist. I, yeah, it's true. They, they are. That's actually an excellent point. I should just say very optimistic and sunny and cheery. And then this is obviously based on its subject matter. It's very intense. And you have Werner Herzog. It is Herzogiest doing these interviews with these prisoners on death row and uh yeah it's grim well it is and it isn't i mean the the thing with it, herzog it isn't when is it isn't <laughs> i mean it okay let's back up a bit the thing with herzog is that he's my favorite filmmaker of all time depressing is not a word i would ever ever use to describe his filmography ever you could say that about parts of on death row but it's and and also into the abyss, which was called from sort of the same project. 
but it's sort of atypical in his filmography. Uh, he's much more of an eccentric. He's interested in the extremes of human existence and all that can entail. He's probably made 50 films. I've probably seen at least 20 of them, and they're mostly great, and they're off also, off, and they're often very different. The thing with On Death Row that people who don't know anything about it should understand is that most times when you're watching a documentary on television or in film, you're looking at hundreds of hours of material that's been meticulously edited down to a tight package. And the thing with these sessions is that he's only able to talk to these inmates for an hour at a time, sometimes with months in between. So he's probably looking at, you know, three, four hours of raw footage at most. So yeah, when you're talking about intense, that's about as intense as a documentary creation situation can get. And I really can't imagine anyone except Herzog getting the job done. Certainly. Well, it's something that they mention on the show that the, the just the specifications for what they're allowed to do. And because, you know, this was for a TV show, the, the people who are in charge of the prisons don't want the prisoners getting some big like public persona or, or having their identity just blown up in any sort of way or publicized on TV. So there are, like you said, there are very strict requirements. So it's no more than an hour at a time. And it's, yeah, it's like months in between. As you say, it's, it's, it's a fascinating documentary series for a number of reasons, but that is certainly one. This is a very different approach than you would, would, would usually see. And, and those month long gaps, it's the people that are interviewed, these five subjects, they look surprisingly different. When, when you, you can tell when it's from one session to the next session. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's certainly not Happy Fun Town, but this is a fantastic series and certainly one that I, I'm glad to have seen as difficult as portions of it were to, to watch, at least for me. Um, shall we dive into some of the more specifics about the various episodes? Yeah, sure. The other thing that's important to understand about the show is that Herzog, I think he, he does something similar in Into the Abyss, and he does something similar in one of these episodes as well. He's very clear on the fact that he doesn't necessarily, he's not necessarily rooting for the people he is, you know, he doesn't have a vested positive interest in the people he's interviewing, uh, but he does oppose capital punishment. He, he gets that out of the way, actually, in the intro to, as a German, uh, <laughs> he has problems with, with capital punishment. But it's, it, what's interesting about these, uh, these four cases is that, I don't think the particulars could be more different. I mean, you have uh, the Hank Skinner case. You could make, you know, watching the, that, those interviews, it's plausible that he's innocent. Uh, watching the James Barnes case, it's pretty much completely implausible that he's innocent. And then watching uh, the members of the Texas Seven, uh, that's a that's again implausible that they're innocent. But also, you're getting I thought was what was a really fascinating look into the mecha the mechanics of how a prison break could and generally did. won't work yeah. did work but then you know yeah. has a finite lifespan mm -hmm. that that's some white knuckle stuff if you ask me well and just the series of of contrasts between these different subjects the, the different people that are interviewed is what makes this such a fascinating series for me so comparing james barnes to hank skinner it's very different yeah. totally stark contrast there and then even just the two member of the members of the texas seven that he talks to one who killed the guy that they are in prison for and one who was not involved in that portion of the crime because he was still inside the, the store 
when this when this police officer was shot. So he could not have shot this guy, but because he was part of that same conspiracy, he is also on death row. And so contrasting their experiences and and uh, the, their path that led them to where they are. I mean, I mean, and then of course there's also Linda Cardi, who is you know featured in, in the fourth episode. Um, so so there are five subjects here, four episodes, but. I mean, you look, you watch Barnes and he, I feel like he is just, what we see of him is he is a, a snake. He is a, a just reptilian. That That's when I, when I hear people in books or in movies or literature described like that, this is now the image I will go to because <laughs> totally just cold. And that's not to be negative about snakes. Snakes are creatures too. Yay. I know it's a... There's a lot of negativity about snakes in this segment. Yeah. But uh, but just the calculating... And when he says at one point, um, I've cried. Like, I really don't believe you right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about a guy who writes letters to the production basically confessing to more murders. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, you mentioned the Linda Cardi episode. The Linda Cardi episode is just unreal. Like I have no idea what to make of that case. Um, the but it does feature the most Herzogian moment of I like the quintessentially Herzogian moment of the whole series when uh, someone involved in the case says that they're wary of humanizing Linda Cardi uh, in the context of the show, and he says, "I'm not humanizing her. She's human." Yeah, and that's just it. That's mm-hmm. all there is to it. Uh, to me, I mean, that doesn't get any more humanist than that. But um, I, I have to say, if I had to pick a single favorite episode, I would probably go for the Hank Skinner one, just because he is such a compelling figure to watch. And even if, like, I, I it, it's it's hard to say with these things. But you, but personally, I watch him, and I think I have a hard time imagining him doing that crime. See, that's the thing. I I don't, but. I, I, I could see it going either way, but I, I absolutely believe that he believes he didn't do it or that he doesn't mm-hmm. think he, you know, could, because the situation with that case is that he was on some like cold medicine or something and then and got drunk. And so and then his girlfriend, wife and her two uh, uh, mentally retarded children were de- found dead. And so he says he was too out to be, have been able to have committed these crimes and the the state says otherwise and he was convicted and there's various uh, evidence you 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 see Skinner argue his his perspective you see the state state put forward their evidence they that they used on trial and it sort of lets you make up your your own mind but that's the, that's for me the huge difference between watching Skinner and watching Barnes I don't know but I I'm pretty sure that Skinner doesn't think he did it at the very least, and Barnes knows he did. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, obviously, Cardi and the and the Seven are a whole other kettle of fish. But I will say that uh, the the interesting thing in the Seven episode is, yeah, watching the contrast between those two guys. Revis is smooth, man. <laughs> yep. The way he uh, he's clearly thought about how to tell his story. He's been ready for this for a while. Like he doesn't necessarily get anything out of it, other than just getting to tell it. But because um, clearly, clearly at that point, you know, he, they did pull off a pretty incredible feat in in getting out of that. But there's no way yeah. there's no like it was, you know, not it wasn't necessarily a positive outcome at all. But it was, you know, thinking back to watching Prison Break on Fox, I thought, 
th- you know what? That prison break made it look simple. <laughs> this, yeah. this is how it's really done, and it's really complicated. Well, and I think it's also uh, it, it's important that these each of these different people are very distinct for their crimes. So Barnes appears to be a cold-blooded, uh, potentially ser- serial killer. Uh, though not necessarily, they didn't really get into if there's a pattern or something, but he's killed many people, and it appears, appears at least, completely in cold blood. Hank Skinner, we still, you know, don't know 100% what happened that night, but we know what we think, you know, the, the state knows what they think happened, and they convict, and, he, and Skinner was convicted for a crime of, I would guess you'd say, passion. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have, uh, you have Linda Cardi, who is either crazy or a patsy, depending on who you believe. And then you have Garcia and Rivas, who obviously they're with the Texas 7. They went out of their way to not injure people until they didn't. And yes. and, and one person died when they, they broke out of prison, managed to not hurt anyone in the process, or not, I should say, killed. I think a couple people were knocked out and stuff. And then they went on a crime spree where they actively did not hurt anyone until a, a, a police officer showed up and was going to take them down. And so they, they killed him. So it's just these different approaches to violence and relationships with violence and the people who perpetrate that. I think it's, it's just, it's a fascinating portrait. Mm-hmm. And anyone who, I guess people are more likely to have seen into the abyss, which is a little bit different because um, in that film, he has the time to interview wardens you know people who work in the prison people who relate to other parts of the case as well as uh family victims and investigators and stuff like that so it's it's more wide-ranging actually much more emotionally devastating so if you think you won't be able to handle it don't watch it but uh into the abyss is is fantastic as well and uh, i i just think it's it's fascinating to watch herzog too as an as an interviewer and his sort of areas of interest like for instance he he asks a lot about dreams and sort of what the prison experience is like because the death row experience is different from the regular prison experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be Skinner or it might be Joseph Garcia who talks about how he just sleeps a lot and dreams because that's all he has. And so of course uh, Herzog takes interest in that because he's very much interested in, in the subconscious. But yeah, I mean, I think if you're interested in, if you've just watched Orange is the New Black and you're sort of fascinated by humanist depictions of life in jail or sort of the the, uh, people on the other side of the law, regardless of your thoughts on capital punishment, I really don't think, I I think Herzog goes out of his way to make sure it's an apolitical series. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And one of the other things I I found completely, again, I keep going back to fascinating about the Skinner episode was watching him talk about his experience being almost executed. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, his he gets a, a stay of execution. He gets a last second stay. Which yeah, again, like if someone wrote that in a season of the killing, like if that had happened with Peter Sarsgaard this season, you would have been like, bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Well even just he gets a call from his or he calls his attorney and finds out at, that he's been granted a stay, but it takes twenty something minutes for the prison mm-hmm. and the warden to be notified of that. For a few seconds, he's like, "Woohoo, pardon!" Yeah, because like, he has to get because uh, he has to get a call from the governor. Yeah, and they're like, "Just yay! I know you're all very happy and everything, but if that phone doesn't ring, we're still gonna kill you." And so mm-hmm. he has, and then he has to wait twenty minutes, f- and and I think it was only like a half hour 
left before he was going to be yeah. killed. Like, what if the governor had food poisoning that day or yeah. was at a party? Like, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's intense. And just just listening to those descriptions. And then, and then as as I said earlier, watching just just observing these people at various points in their incarceration, depending on, you know, when Herzog was able to, to interview them is is very it's very interesting and uh yeah definitely worth worth checking out any surprises or oddities or i mean we haven't really talked about the fact that for the barnes episode we they interview his sister we get a lot more backstory of him but we don't really get that in the other episodes i felt like it was warranted there though i thought that was i was glad they included it with him but not with the others what did you think about that I suspect he probably shot material like that for all of them mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, he had time. He only got a couple hours with the actual inmates. So I'm sure he shot lots of additional material, but you're editing down to 45 minutes. And I think he had a pretty good sense of what was important and what wasn't. I, I would also caution anyone who happens to be a Herzog fan that, like, if if you got into him through his documentaries, like Encounters at the End of the World or Cave of Forgotten Dreams, Grizzly Man, like, this isn't really much like any of those. Uh, it's it's much more like a straight true crime story that happens to have a little bit of sometimes slightly eccentric, but generally way, way pared down sense of like Herzogian eccentricity that just kind of ekes its way in there every, every now and again. I'll, I'll also mention that he's apparently working on either a film or a film in a series about uh, hate groups in America, which, <laughs> yes, I want to see that. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I, I feel like I have seen other Herzog films or works, but then when I look at a list of his, his filmography, I can't name one that I've seen. So I'm very glad to finally be able to officially say, yes, I've seen Herzog. Yes, You've I really enjoy, I enjoy his work and I think he's brilliant. And because um, I've thought that for a while now, I must have seen like clips or something at some point. But uh, thank you for making me watch this because I never would have on my own. Oh, I, I, I definitely know you never would have. And speaking of things you probably wouldn't have watched either. I wouldn't have known it existed. First person. Oh, first person. I have no idea why no one knows this exists. Uh, but essentially, here's another uh, legendary filmmaker, in this case, strictly a documentary filmmaker with exceedingly rare exceptions. Uh, Errol Morris, I think, is as great a documentarian as Herzog, but he's completely different. I mean, Herzog is a journeyman and has an interest in the soul and the subconscious and, and all kinds of, has got all kinds of strange adventures. But Morris is primarily a journalist and an investigator and, who happens to have a strong interest in, in personalities. And First Person is basically a lot like his early 80s films in miniature, Many of the episodes are half an hour, and I think uh, in the second season they mostly balloon out to an hour. There's only a couple that are actually an hour in the the second season, so there's a, there's a few. It's it's occasionally a little bit arbitrary, which I'm sure we'll get into. But it's it's an interesting range of people you may have heard of, like uh, like Temple Grandin, obviously, is the first episode, but mostly a lot of people you would never have heard of otherwise. Yeah, and uh, that that was. You know, it's really interesting who he chose to interview for this. And, and of course, it was my introduction to the Interotron, which was really fun. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But, yes, there are certain people that I was uh, aware of and others that I was completely oblivious to. And 
some worked better than others. I think they were all interesting. I there wasn't a single one that I watched and went, "Ugh, I shouldn't have spent my time on right, that." Yeah. But uh, I would say one of them felt very long because it was a double episode. It was an hour long, and I don't really know why it was. But of the 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 myriad fantastic shows we've watched and discussed this year and it's been a great year for television i don't know if i've had a more intense tv viewing experience than the final entry in in season two the the i guess the finale as it were of first person which is called leaving the earth and it's about and you know an interview with denny fitch who was a dc 10 pilot who helped land a DC-10 that should have exploded and killed everyone on board. And uh, I, we're talking nails into the armrests, edge of your seat. I thought it was fantastic. And I, you know, the description they have of each of these different people that he interviews, you know, there are just a few words. This one is Denny Fitch, DC-10 pilot and hero. And you're like, okay, whatever. And then you click play and you yeah. watch it and you're like, holy crap. I, I believe it's DC 10 pilot survivor and hero. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that I, it's funny. I hadn't even seen that one until a couple months ago because I happened to, to have watched a bunch of it on DVD back when we uh, had it at movie land. And I, it, it occurred to me a little while ago that there was some I hadn't watched. I was like, Oh, what's this one? I had no idea. Totally unassuming. And I was just floored. I think that's the only episode that really matches his best film work. I think the rest of first person, it ranges from, from interesting to very good. Uh, but a lot of it is too minor to really register on that same level, but that episode, and it's such a great showcase for his style, which is pretty consistent uh, throughout his documentaries. He uses a lot of inner titles, a lot of stock footage. Uh, the music, uh, especially in his last six or seven features uh, is all by Philip glass. I'm not sure if glass handled the music on this series, but it's very, much the same style, uh, minimalist, repetitious, uh, and really great for building suspense and uh, and other sort of em emotional beats here and there. And yeah, that episode, it's it's great that it's an hour long because they managed to take the time they need to, to underline every single variable that is just absolutely effing insane mm -hmm. about that. Like this, just the fact that he's on the flight at all, which yeah. is completely arbitrary. I could have gotten that one, but I got on this later one. Why? I don't know. <laughs> and then, so, and then, you know, the fact that, you know, they lose all hydraulics on the plane. If you don't know what that is, by the way, that means, you know how they have those flaps they can control and they're always opposite. One goes down, one goes up, and that's what keeps the plane level and makes sure it None doesn't... of those. Yeah. You can't fly this type of plane without them. Like, literally, it's not in the book, what do I do if, because you, you cannot fly the plane without hydraulics. And they lost hydraulics. They talk about how in the manuals they have to, that, you know, the people who write the manuals plan for any eventuality that could occur within, I think, one in a million. Yeah, what? Yeah, as long as it's more than one in a billion, this was one in a billion. Yeah. So, <laughs> they, yeah, there's nothing. And I thought to myself, I also th thought to myself early on, well, okay, this guy seems all right. I mean, it's been how many years since the crash? He seems physically intact, so it yeah. probably won't be that bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah anyway yeah that episode you're absolutely right it's it's easily the best of the series and uh it it's on youtube along with almost every single other episode it's uh, essential viewing for anyone really yeah and and the other people have or other tv shows and stuff have 
told this story or interviewed this guy or really looked at it. Like I know on like, History Channel and some of these like flying greatest plane crashes that or things like that like they've they've talked about this story so i mentioned it to for example my father who loves the history channel stuff and he was like oh yeah yeah he knew exactly what it was without having seen this but the the gravity and the stakes of this situation and fitch's just his ability to speak of it his his personality and his conversational tone and all that because, of course, he was also an instructor for many years, so he's very well-spoken, lend themselves perfectly to this Terratron, you know, approach to documentary filmmaking. So he just is talking directly into camera and relaying his story, and he's very at ease in that role, whereas maybe some of the others aren't, which is interesting in itself. But for, for this, you know, it's like the encapsulation of what this, this form of a show can do and it's definitely the the most affecting and the best but there are plenty of other other stories that i thought were very interesting of course for those who are fans of argo antonio mendez got uh who is the you know, the ben affleck character in argo is him uh, right. which when you see him you're like oh <laughs> yeah yeah ben affleck really <laughs> but he got a half hour whereas rick rosner who is who went back to high school like seven times and is obsessed about getting eliminated on who wants to be a millionaire got an hour. And I, that was one where I just really well, didn't understand. Well, th that's interesting. What, what I noticed about his selection of people is that there are a lot of pairs, like inadvertent pairs. Like yes. there are two very smart men who are very different. There are two, uh, you know, you have the serial killer groupie, uh, Sandra London, as well as uh, the Unabomber's pen pal, uh, and there's some other some other pairings you could make, mm -hmm. but um, Rosner, why he gets an hour, I really don't know. But I will say that he's definitely he's a character. I mean, you can't say he's not a character. Yes, he is. And I think what I find interesting about Rosner is just his absolutely appalling decision making. Yeah. Is just is amazing to chart to me. Like especially just the like. Oh, I decided the chicks dig scars, and then what happens so after I that? So I cut cut myself up to have a Rambo scar. Yeah, but, uh, and yeah. then I discovered chicks don't dig scars, but it was too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, the the contrast of the various people was part of what made me enjoy some of these episodes more. So contrasting Rosner with Langan, I both they're both very intelligent men. Langan seems way more intelligent, though, and sort of on a different plane from from Rosner and most people in the world, actually, apparently. Um, but they're both very intelligent men who, through outward appearances, don't do anything with their high intelligence. The one guy right. uh, was spent many, many years as, as a stripper and some f working in bars, and the other guy is a bouncer at bars. And so, like, having these parallels to compare these different people with was, was very interesting. Another one, I would have loved if, they, if he had interviewed a very, very intelligent woman and gotten her experience, because there were parallels between Langan and Rosner's high school experiences that I found very interesting. I would have loved to hear him interview a woman in a similar, you know, range of intelligence to see what her experience was to con contrast that but another one of the ones i really enjoyed was actually uh joan dougherty who does who's a crime scene cleaner talking about her experience i thought that was completely fascinating how she got into that line of work and her personal tragedy that introduced her to that and oh, I, there was a lot of really a lot of really interesting 
if, if if the people, I mean, the people were all interesting, but if nothing else, then they had some sort of unique perspective or even just a job. You look at um, Mr. Dead, Andrew Cappuccia, <laughs> who was a lawyer who was not long after his episode aired, he was a debt expert. He was uh, disbarred and convicted for basically yes. stealing his client's money. And there's also then a, a mob lawyer. Yeah. And sort of contrasting these, it was really fun. The mob lawyer episode I found hard to watch because he's just so sleazy, but I think it's got one of the best quotes from the whole series when uh, he says, well, the good thing about that's the good thing about murder cases. One less witness. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wow. fascinating. It's fascinating to to watch these perspectives that these different people have. And, you know, you, you see these these men for the most part and a few women as well. And you absolutely can see you know, through Morse's interviewing of them and their own just personalities and and this interrotron process, which apparently helps people to open up in a way that right. maybe a more standard approach wouldn't, um, you see where they're coming from. For anyone who doesn't know, the Interatron is a device apparently invented by Al Morris's wife, and it's mm. been used in, I think, all of his films as well as here, where, whereby basically the people being interviewed are looking into a monitor that ha that's lined up directly with the camera. So they're looking directly at the camera and directly at an image of Morris at the same time. It sounds very simple, but it actually adds a lot to the dynamic of the interviews that people don't necessarily always register. Yeah, it allows you to have a straight-on shot of the person talking directly to camera, but they can see who they're talking to, their interviewer, at the same time. So you are basically put in the position of their interviewer while maintaining that interpersonal dynamic because they can actually see them. So it's very effective. Some of these other people, I would have really liked to have an hour with Temple Grandin. I think she's fascinating, and this was felt like a very limited and very specific area for her, much like it was for Mendez. Um, who are the people that you would have liked more time with? Uh, I think those are both fair. I, I didn't actually find the Mendez episode to be one of my favorites. It was cute. It had some interesting details, but uh, I, it, it felt like someone whose story had been told before and not even because of Argo later. Like it felt like something that had been a little bit more worked over. Mm -hmm. I could have spent some more time with Chris Langan. Um, although after watching his episode, rewatching his episode, um, I did, I did a little bit of poking around online and watched, uh, I don't know if you saw, he did an episode of one versus 100. No, I didn't. Uh, it's, I mean, one versus 100 is not really an act is not really a measure of intelligence, which uh -huh. he repeatedly acknowledges in the episode. And it's kind of interesting to watch, but uh, I won't spoil what happens for you, but it's, if it's, it's worth, a, it's worth a watch, but uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see some of these people did get a little bit more attention after these aired, even though apparently no one knows the show exists. <laughs> and we should say these aired in 2000 and 2001. Right. Yeah. Not really sure what, what, what else to add. I'm just fascinated by Morris as, uh, as a filmmaker, I mean, you're talking about a guy who, in the 80s, after he made a couple of uh, early features, he retired from filmmaking for a while to become a private investigator. And then while he was working as a private investigator, stumbled upon a murder case, the particulars of which he was unsatisfied with. So he made a documentary about it called The Thin Blue Line and got innocent people exonerated <laughs> with his film. Like, he is an incredible guy. Uh, his op-ed that runs uh, in the New York Times about the nature of photography uh, and the effect of images is uh, is really interesting. Uh, many of his films are great. The Thin Blue Line, Gates of Heaven, uh, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, Standard Operating Procedure, and especially The Fog of War, which is like kind of a first-person style portrait of Robert S. McNamara. So think about these interviews and then imagine 
what he'll do with a budget and two hours and Robert McNamara. And you've got an idea what that's like. And he's got one coming up, which I'll hopefully be seeing at TIFF called The Unknown Known with, oh, yes, Donald Rumsfeld. Oh, my God. I cannot wait to watch that. <laughs> well, and much like with, with Herzog, this is the first Errol Morris that I've seen. And I know everyone listening, I know I need to have seen The Thin Blue Line and Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control and many of these, you know, The Fog of War and Run in Florida. And I've been meaning to for a long time. But... Hey, I've seen first person, and isn't that something? And most people haven't. Even Errol Morris fans, a lot of them don't know it exists. Uh, so, yes. Oh, and the other one I did want to mention, I found the parrot fascinating. <laughs> this is the story of there was a woman was murdered, and she had a pet parrot. They, they've convicted someone of the crime. And after the parrot had, like, started to get cared for again, so, because it was, you know, alone for quite a while, so it was hungry and sick and everything. So once it got healthy again, it started talking uh, and saying, no, Richard, no, no, no. And so it's posited in this that the parrot may have been an eyewitness to the murder, and you have a woman on each side saying, yes, the parrot, it, this is the case and the wrong person is in jail or no, that's ridiculous. It's a parrot. The right person is in jail. And <laughs> I don't know what I think. What do you think? I don't know what I think either, but I do know that as soon as Morris stumbled onto this story, his investigative radar must have just gone ding, ding, ding. <laughs> uh, this is fascinating. Let me get this on camera immediately. Uh, I would be curious to get other people's opinions, but yeah, I'm much like with Linda Cardi. I, I don't feel like taking a stance on that one. <laughs> Staying safely on the fence. Well, let us know if you have seen any of these series. Um, yeah, as I said earlier, I don't know anyone who's seen the number one ladies detective agency who isn't in my immediate family or Simon now. <laughs> and so I would love to hear from you if you've actually, if you've seen that. And then, of course, also on Death Row and First Person. Hopefully you'll check these these shows out. Like I said earlier, I was going to wait for a DVD shelf of the number one ladies detective agency. And then I realized it was never going to happen. So the only yeah. way we were going to talk about the, really any of these shows was to pick them ourselves. So, so let us know what you think of, of the various make you watch the thon picks. And Simon, do you know what you're gonna do for next year? Cause I still have Torchwood children of earth sitting in my back pocket. Uh, I'm going to think about it. I might, um, I've been looking for an excuse to finally watch all of Trailer Park Boys. Okay. Because uh, it doesn't really get any more Canadian than that. So, uh, But that, that's also like eight seasons and a couple of movies, so I don't know if, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm ready for that much commitment. I'll think about it. I'll think yeah. about it. We I, do I have may, a whole uh, other year. I, I, uh, there's another series from my childhood I'm thinking of, but it's, it's hard to track down, so I'll have to, get, I'll have to find a set somewhere. Uh, anyway, I'll think about it. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Our intro music was composed by Simon Howell. Our outro music for the time being is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. We'll have a post up at soundonsite.org for this episode, so leave us comments there. Let us know what you thought about everything we talked about. You can also find us on Facebook, where you can like us to follow everything that's going on at Sound on Sight TV, which in the next coming weeks will be a lot. Fall season's kicking up, and we already have a lot of shows planned to be covering for the next year. Um, you can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. And, of course, we're both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. You are? At Sucker Howl. And, Simon, what should our question of the week be? I would like to know uh, if people read Anna Gunn's op-ed in the New York Times and have any thoughts on that. Yeah, good question. <laughs> are, we, are we poking the, uh, the listeners? <laughs> poking the listeners. 
Yeah. Good times. Well, let us know what you think. And as ever, thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Television. <laughs>